I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to Scuderia F1, the podcast that's always up to speed with the latest Formula One news. Follow us on Twitter at Scuderia F1 Pod and subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Daly and Kevin Laramang. Hey everybody, what is up? Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed here on the Overtime Media Network. This is Scuderia F1 in a flash. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. I guess you see <laughs> what I've done here. Mark and Mark, welcome you to the show. Uh, I'm Mark Daly. If uh, you're listening to Scuderia F1, you know me. If you're a, a fan of F1 in a flash, you'll know my friend Mark Hamilton. This is going to be really easy from the point of view of, uh, of hosting tonight because I think we just should label everything, Mark. You know, the teams, the drivers, I mean, the hosts. You know. <laughs> it might actually be a little bit uh, less confusing in the long run, but uh, this is going to be fun. Been looking forward to doing this all week. Yeah, and it's so funny too, because not only do we share the same name and, and some of the same passions, but we also happen to share the same hometown. And and I'm sure you've shared this on, on your podcast many times, but your home is effectively located on what was previously a, a pretty famous and historic Canadian landmark in the Westwood uh, Motorsport Park. And and it was funny, and I don't know if I shared this with you the, a couple of days ago, but I was browsing some photos from the early 80s, yep. and that's a track where K.K. Rosberg has actually... Uh, tasted victory in the past. So it's it's kind of interesting. We both share the same name. We both live in the same city of Coquitlam, British Columbia, which is a suburb of Vancouver. Um, and then we also both host Formula One podcasts. So it's kind of funny. <laughs> I know it's really weird because, you know, you're just on like just a couple of miles away from me. And, uh, you know, like you say, the uh, old Westwood Motorsport uh, Park is just literally around the corner here. And, you know, it's funny because I was at Motors- or Westwood Motorsport Park at about that time in the early 80s, I was just a little kid. Wow. And it's, it's it's one of those really kind of like foggy, vague memories you sometimes drag out of like your your early childhood. But I specifically remember going there uh, with my dad way back when. Unfortunately, my dad, you know, has uh, long since uh, passed away. So I can't really ask him, obviously, as to who was there at that time. But as the years have gone on and w- when we moved up here, you know, a number of years ago, I'd always wondered, did I see somebody famous when I was like three years oh, old amazing. or whatever it was. And it, it's always kind Aww. of, it's been one of those questions that's always kind of gnawed at me a little bit. But uh, I guess uh, maybe one day I'll find that answer out. But until then, we've got a lot of questions that we need to answer. And we we, we need a lot, to, uh, a lot of time to discuss what is going to be our report card session for the first half of the 2020 Formula One World Championship. And I know just before we started here, Mark, that uh, I said, well, let's put uh, like Liberty and F1 right to the, the the bottom of the order after we go through all the teams and stuff. But I still have to say, and I say almost every week on the show, so I might as well just throw it out here right, uh, right at the beginning before we kind of come full circle at the end. But I have to give these guys major props for getting this season up and running because, I mean... 
every week and month in this weird COVID environment that we're living in is, is, is different. But the fact that after like a three or a three and a half month delay, we actually got a season going and we've had positive COVID results in, in the paddock with uh, you know, Checo Perez. And it seems to be working, and that's uh, I, I'm absolutely astounded. But the cool thing is, we also got uh, some tracks that we've never seen before. I mean, Mugello was epic. Can't wait to see some of these other ones. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Well, why don't we get the red pens out? Let's uh, let's t- go down the list and uh, all ten teams. Talk about the drivers. Talk about the teams themselves. And just our impressions on what they've done through the first nine races of the year. And the first team that immediately comes to mind, because they've been in the news recently for, I'd say, some positive news. And although it's a little bit of sad news, obviously, I'm talking about Williams, who obviously the Williams family are no longer in Formula One after Sir Frank was in involved in his own team for, what, 43 years or something? Anyways, I I think it's one of those benchmark uh, moments when you get a big change like that. But this team has needed something for the last several years. And honestly, Mark, I didn't think that that something would mean the removal of the Williams from their own team. But, you know, I I guess at the end of the day, they felt that's uh, what the, the right thing was to do for them. But... Let's let's start with them. Um, it's like I say, it's been pretty downhill and pretty dire for them for the past uh, couple of years. If you look at where they are right now uh, this year in the, the the championship, struggling a little bit, but they've had some decent uh, some decent moments. Uh, George Russell definitely has been um, he's been impressive. I think getting that car into Q two a number of times. Unfortunately, himself and our fellow Canadian Nick Latifi haven't scored any points in the World Championship, but compared to some of the other teams, they've been fairly reliable, which is, uh, I guess, something to be uh, proud about. You know, I I, I really struggle with the Williams story for a, a couple of reasons. I, I think... One, it, it's a very special team in the context of Formula One. It's it's a heritage team. As you mentioned, they've been a part of Formula One for, for 40 years. They, they've been historically a very successful team. They, they've won 114 races, nine constructors titles, seven drivers titles. Um, to be fair, they, they haven't won a championship since 1997. They haven't won a race since Maldonado picked kind of pulled off that that uh, <laughs> impressive maybe fluke win in, in 2012 but it, it's it's a team that to your point has really been in flux the last couple of years and it's crazy yeah. to think that it was only four or five years ago that this team was relatively successful and you, you look at 2014 the first year of the hybrid era they finished third in the constructors t- championship 2015 once again they, they finished third in the constructors t- championship and really it was 2017 late and then 2018 2019 that organizationally that this team really collapsed and and I think what we really began to see was the team began to run out of capital and the team became incredibly dependent on sponsorship and the challenge with Formula 1 is that if you're not winning you're not raking in that sponsorship revenue and it becomes cyclical mm-hmm. and and it's interesting I, I I saw an interview with Claire Williams today and I think a lot of people and a lot of fans and a lot of analysts were really curious that hey look you know why why the sale you know we we understood that Williams was in a, a tough spot financially uh you know you hadn't won anything of significance in some time why why the complete outright 
right sale. You know, we, we understood you were looking for investors. And Claire's point was really that, you know what, going into 2020, the team actually felt that financially they were finally in a reasonably good place. Obviously, they'd secured some, she didn't say this, but they'd obviously secured some significant financial backing with the acquisition of Nicholas Latifi yes. and the, the Safina money that came from his father. And the reality is the Rocket sponsorship looked like it was going to put them in a really good place. And Claire spoke to the fact that the Rocket sponsorship and the Rocket organization was basic, were basically promising them the moon. And they felt that they were really set up. And then two things happened this year. One, obviously the pandemic um, and the team's revenues collapsed overnight. And then the fact that the Rocket sponsorship deal completely collapsed and completely fell apart. So they lost the revenue associated with racing, but they also lost the revenue associated with their principal sponsor. And that opened up the door, obviously, to the acquisition from that venture capitalist firm in the US. And, and yep. it's kind of interesting, and and it's it's funny because if you read a lot of F1 Twitter and a lot of F1 Reddit, the the belief is that that venture capitalist firm is actually just a front for a very wealthy family that hasn't yet been revealed. But either way, it's it's a team in transition. Uh, Claire's gone, Frank's gone, the family's out of the organization, and I think that was probably the only way that this was ever going to work. But it kind of sets them up for the future, to your point. But it also leaves them in a pretty interesting position right now. And we both know 2018, they finished 10th in the standings. 2019, they finished 10th in the standing. They had one points finish last year. They had three points finishes in 2018. They haven't yet scored in the points this yeah. year, but there are some signs. And you spoke to the fact that, you know what, George Russell is showing some flashes in qualifying. He's been into Q2 five times. He's been into Q1 a couple of times. Uh, there's been a couple of races where Nicholas Latifi has been relatively close. Nicholas Latifi has a couple of 11th place finishes. Yep. Like, there's there's still some signs here. Absolutely, and the the one thing that uh, that I find this whole uh, sale to Darrelton Capital is a really uh, fascinating on a couple of levels is because in my mind I've been drawing some parallels between Williams and the situation we saw with uh, Force India slash Racing Point a couple of years ago. They were sputtering, they were struggling, they were obviously on life support. What with Vijay Malia and all the legal problems he was having, and and the funding on that side was kind of really that tap was being slowly turned off. And then midway through the season, you have Lawrence Stroll come in with his group and they they buy out the team. There's that immediate injection of cash. Okay, it didn't move them all the way up to the the, the podium, but you could see within a couple of races, there was a market improvement in that team immediately in the weeks and months after the sale. And I'm really keeping a close eye on Williams to see that. I mean, obviously, we're not going to give them a great uh, letter grade based on the results. But like you say, I mean, uh, Nick has been close on a couple times just missing out of the points George Russell was very close to Mugello last week I thought it was really interesting that Seb Vettel was saying that he felt bad that he was the guy that denied <laughs> George Russell his uh, his first points finish in Formula One but you know that it that that's racing for you but you know I mean obviously if we're going to go with a, a letter where you know just purely on pace and performance and just the quality of the car is going to be an E or an F but to, in my mind you got to give them a higher grade for effort because it's not for 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 lack of trying so we'll see how it goes uh with them it's it's definitely going to be a team to to watch in the future um especially this year it'll be interesting to see if they can eke out a bit of uh, performance here and there or if uh, they've uh, hit the wall in terms of uh you know what the the fw43 can do 
And uh, well, next year is going to be a development on this year. So perhaps we have to look towards 2022 before we really see the the, the fruits of this uh, this project uh, really starting to, uh, you know, start to show something. So let's move uh, a little bit further up the grid here. And let's take a look at uh, one of the Ferrari customer teams. And that is the Haas and the VF20. Well, it is not really going all that great for them. Uh, out of the nine races so far, they have one point finish, and that was uh, Kevin Magnussen, who scored a single point in Hungary. Uh, K-Mag also has five DNFs to his name, and his teammate, Ro- Roman Grosjean. Uh, well, Rogro has finished all but one race. He retired at the uh, the season opener in, uh, in Austria, and his best finish to date is uh, a P12, which uh, he, uh, he, he nailed both in Italy at Monza and then last week at Mugello. So this is a team too that doesn't really seem to be going anywhere. They've shown in the past uh, since they joined Formula One back in 2016, they had, uh, it's, they've been slowly going backwards. They, they started fairly decent in, in 2016, 2017 and 2018. They had a number of uh, points finishes and uh, starting last year, they only had about half a dozen point finishes, the best uh, being a P6 in Austria last year. So it's uh, it's been a frustrating project to watch, but it is interesting when you hear Gunther Steiner and Gene Haas to a certain extent uh, being a little bit more positive about uh, you know the new landscape that we're going to see in Formula One with the cost cap and the new Concord agreement. But again, this this is a team that uh, I know it's a, it's it's not one of the big manufacturers, but I would have expected that they would have. I didn't expect them to slide as far down as they 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 have been because they're clearly not competitive. It's it's really interesting, and you made this point as well. This is a team that entered the sport in 2016, and 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 let's be clear as well. Gene Haas, you, you know, he's an incredibly wealthy American. He's been involved in motorsports. He founded the incredibly successful Stuart Haas Racing Team in NASCAR in 2002. Haas F1 was really a vanity project for him, and mm-hmm. he he joined in 2016. Originally, it was expected to be 2015. He joined in 2016. There was an agreement with Bernie that the team wouldn't be able to cash in any prize money if they won it. So 2017 was really the first year they were able to compete financially with the other teams. Um, but they were criticized early on. And you mentioned that, you know, they're a Ferrari team. And the philosophy of this team really is that they buy every part allowed under the sports formula. So the the criticism early was maybe a little bit unfounded. They had some early points finishes in 2016 and, and people came out very, very critical of the team. Uh, 2017, some modest improvements. 2018 was a fairly successful year for that team. They finished with 93 points in yep. the constructors. They finished fifth overall. And, and it looked like, it really looked like they turned a corner. To your point, 2019, they really crashed. Despite the fact that they had a fairly a fairly powerful and a fairly strong Ferrari source power unit. It was mm-hmm. still a fairly poor year. And then this year, they've completely bottomed out. And I think the question that a lot of analysts and, and fans and supporters had coming into this season was, why are you retaining the same driver pairing? This is yeah. the fourth year that they've had the exact same driver pairing of Roman Grosjean and Magnussen. And Quite frankly, neither of them have really delivered any truly, and again, a lot of this is driven by the car that they're driving, but I've not seen enough from either of them to suggest that bringing them back this year was warranted. Like That to me was a, a pretty, and I don't know if you felt the same way, but I was pretty surprised they brought these drivers back. And based on what we're seeing this year, I don't know that they're going to be invited back next year. 
Yeah, I, I 100% uh, agree with you. So I, I think there's three things uh, against them right now. Call it three strikes and you're out. I mean, uh, number one is I don't think that the chassis itself is uh, exceptionally good. Uh, number two is I think that anybody that has a Ferrari power unit is probably wishing they had something else, either a Renault, a Mercedes, or uh, or or a rubber band, <laughs> the Flintstone kind of car. <laughs> I mean, that, that Ferrari power unit, obviously, that there's something going on with uh, what's inside that Ferrari power unit. And we'll, we'll probably talk about that in depth when we get to uh, Ferrari themselves a little bit uh, further on. But I totally agree with you. I think this this is a team that needs something. I think they, they also need a breath of fresh air. And I really can't justify bringing back either Roma Grosjean or Kevin Magnussen at this point. When you have guys like Sergio Perez, Nico Hulkenberg, guys that that, that are proven uh, drivers in Formula One that currently don't have a a contract for, for 2021, I mean, I, I think that Nico Hulkenberg did a great job deputizing for uh, Sergio Perez at the two races we saw at Silverstone during the summer. And, uh, and, and Nico, I know he's got a very extensive Formula One uh, 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 background and resume without ever getting on the podium. I think he had something was like about 150 or 160 races to his name without ever getting on the podium. But still, this is a guy that that, that won Le Mans a couple of years ago. I think he's a fairly uh, decent driver. And I, I think also uh, Perez, you know, they're both good team guys too. Not to say that Roman Grosjean and Kevin Magnussen aren't, but I, I think that, uh, you know, if, if you're uh, uh, Gunther Steiner or Gene Haas, I think that you, you're looking really hard at the at the driver market. I believe they said about a week ago that there's 10 guys that they're they're actually considering to to get in their their car for next year. Now whether two of those 10 guys are Roman Grosjean and Kevin Magnussen that uh, that remains to be seen, but you know, like you say, I find it a, a little bit uh, difficult to to justify, um, you know, any of those guys. And you know, also the uh, that uh, some of the, the the calls that they're making on the pit wall are a bit bizarre. You know, like the uh, you know the, the whole thing that we saw in Hungary. It seemed like it was a brilliant idea to do what they did and switch the tires, and then of course they get penalized for it right at the uh, the at the end of the race. So, you know, I guess it was worth uh, a bit of a gamble if uh, you know your ass uh, to to maybe get a points finish and I guess it worked out to a certain degree for them but uh, you know it, I, I don't see a lot of good things happening at a Haas F1 right now so it's it's important to remember as well Roman Grosjean isn't a young driver like th- no. this is one of the older drivers on the grid he's 34 he's been in 170 Grand Prix he has 10 podiums of course none of those were with Haas um, Kevin Magnussen's not young either he's 27 and and if I'm this team especially with the the immense influx of young talent that the sport has right now I, I would really struggle to hold on to these drivers and to your point like think about think about Sergio Perez from a marketing perspective Haas is the only U.S. based team if you had a driver from Mexico on that team like imagine imagine what you could do from a marketing perspective yep. to package him up with an American based team that's close to the Mexican border like that's as close to a home team as you could pair Sergio with so you you potentially could bring on this immensely talented driver who's younger than Roman Grosjean who could bring some pretty significant sponsorship dollars with them but also enable you to compete like I think there's some better pairings there both from a financial perspective and from a performance perspective and I think Gene and Gunther Steiner are smart enough to recognize that I I think the other good news story for Haas is 
I wasn't necessarily confident in the future of this team. And and I think the outcome of the Concord agreement negotiations was really going to dictate whether this team remained or not. And I was very, very relieved that they were one of the teams that signed on to the Concord agreement, which helps to secure their future, at least potentially through 2025. And yeah. the reality is that may not necessarily be the case. But I, again, the sport needs 10 teams on the grid and Haas should be one of those. And I think ultimately, if the team is performing and they're able to cater and market the sport to American fans, that's that's a good thing. And ultimately, I think that's what I want to see out of this Haas project. Yeah, absolutely. And and like I say, if I'm one of the, the, the guys making the decisions there, I'm ser- seriously looking at a guy like Sergio Perez for, like you say, I mean, he ticks a lot of boxes. I think he would uh, be a good fit there. All right, time for a quick break here on the Overtime Media Network. And I'd like to take this opportunity now to talk to you about my bookie because winning season is back. And winning season at my bookie means doubling your first deposit. Winning season also means insane props, epic bonuses, and the craziest cross sport wagers. At my bookie, winning season means watching live sports and betting live sports all season long. The NFL is finally back, and that means action-packed Sundays and huge cash prizes. So get in on the action and use my promo code OVERTIME to double your first deposit. New players get up to $1,000 in free play designed to add more excitement to the sports you love and the games you bet. Bet with the best this NFL season for your chance to win big. Use my promo code OVERTIME and double your first deposit. Your winning season begins today only at MyBookie. And Overtime is going all in for our listeners this month. We're going to give away $500 cash to one lucky person who takes advantage of this offer. When you make your first deposit, take a screen grab of your MyBookie account and email it to overtime at advertisecast.com. That's overtime at advertisecast.com. And $500 will be given away by the end of September. Okay, so let, let's move now. Let's uh, go to another Ferrari customer team in Alfa Romeo. So a uh, second year in a row, we have driver pairing of Kimi Raikkonen and Antonio Giovinazzi. And compared to this time last year, things really aren't going all that great. Uh, this time last year, uh, Kimi had six uh, points uh, finishes after nine races. Antonio had a one point uh, or one points uh, finish, and that was at the uh, the Austrian Grand Prix. They actually had a, a ninth and tenth there. They finished eighth in the world championship uh, last year on 57 points. They kind of cooled off in the second half of the season. Kimmy's, uh, he got uh, six of his nine podium, or sorry, points, uh, I shouldn't say podiums, uh, points finishes in the first <laughs> half of the season. Whereas Antonio, he got three out of his four in the second half of the year. Anyways, this year, a very different story. I think that uh, a lot of it, again, has to do with the fact that they're using an underpowered Ferrari power unit. Uh, Kimi, um, he's only got one DNF to his name. That was at Austria at the beginning of the year. Antonio has uh, didn't finish in uh, in two in Belgium. Uh, he had the big crash there, of course, and then he didn't finish in Tuscany uh, because again a big crash. Uh, he got a P nine in Austria. Kimi uh, scored points in uh, in Tuscany as well. So they only have two points to their name. I mean, they don't have a lot uh, at, at the moment, and you know they're eighth in the world championship. But you look behind them; the, the only two teams that are worse than they are in the in the constructors right now are two teams that uh, haven't scored any points at all so 
you know, I, I think it's also very interesting when you look that at this point in the season, Kimi Raikkonen, you know, at 40 years old, whatever he is right now, the former world champion, an exceptionally talented Formula One driver only has one points finish to his name. And I, I think that has a lot to do with the equipment that he has on uh, on a race weekend and on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, I think it's, it's it's all in the car and specifically the, the engine that is uh, driving these poor results for Alfa Romeo this year. The the timing for Alfa Romeo in terms of their, and, and I, I almost like to think of it kind of as an integration project with Ferrari. So prior to 2019, you know, there were some technical relationships and partnerships with Ferrari, but it was really the Sauber team. But in rebranding as Alfa Romeo, to me, they really became a, a much closer participant of that that Ferrari project. And, and last year, it, it paid off. You know, they mm-hmm. finished with 57 points. They had some competitive finishes. Uh, Kimi Raikkonen, particularly, was relatively strong for a 39-year-old driver. I, I think Antonio Giovinazzi's performances were suspect, and I think he really saved his seat with that performance in Brazil right at the end of the season. Yep. But to your point, to have a, a technical relationship and be a customer of Ferrari in terms of their power units in 2020 is a, a really problematic place to be. And the reality is, from an aerodynamic perspective and a chassis perspective, it wasn't great last year, and they carried a lot of that mediocre package over, but now it's paired with this really problematic Ferrari power unit, and that's a technical arrangement that's not going anywhere. So their performance is really going to ebb and flow with Ferrari's ability to develop a new power unit over the next couple of years, but they're in a really tough spot. And I, I, unless unless there's a breakthrough technologically with that power unit this year, I don't necessarily see the trend improving. And I also have to question one, I, I can't imagine that Giovinazzi is going to be back next year. Again, especially with all the young talent in the sport, Giovinazzi's young, but he's not that young. I believe he's 26. Raikkonen's around because he's a big personality. And to your point, he's the 2007 champion. And with that comes a lot of marketing dollars and a lot of exposure. And it's easy to sell tickets to fundraising events and things like that. So it's nice to have him there. But at the same time, you have to wonder what his motivation would be to come back next year. Because if this team performs like it does this year, does he want to come back? And if he does come back, what's his attitude going to be like? Is he going to be positive? Is he going to contribute to the team? Is he going to support the engineers and the mechanics and be a positive attitude within that pit garage? Or is he going to be more of a negative influence? So I think the challenge for this team is the year's not going to go well. For me, Alfa Romeo is an F and a lot of that's related to the fact that they've got that Ferrari power unit. But I think the question for this team is just like Haas, we have this driver pairing. Is this the driver pairing that we bring back next year? And I don't necessarily know that it is. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I, I think this is another one that uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see changes with it. And and it's funny, too, when you're talking about Antonio Giovinazzi not being the youngest of drivers. I, I just kind of have it in my mind that he is. But then when you look, you like you say, he's 26 and then you know, you see this revolution with like the younger drivers. You look at like your your Max Verstappen's, your Charles Leclerc's, your Pierre Gasly's. You know, it, just pick and, and Lando Norris. I mean, we'll get to Lando in a, in a little while here. I mean, the trend is going younger, and not to say that obviously when you're 26 you're over the hill, but the it, age I don't think is necessarily as a, a hindrance as or maybe. Uh, a potential uh, block for some of these uh, younger drivers. I mean, we're we're starting to see some uh, some some better things out of Lance Stroll this year as well. Now that he's got a good car that he didn't have his first couple of years in, in Formula One, so we're we're seeing this that that uh, young isn't necessarily a bad thing. And uh, again, I mean, uh, Kimmy, yeah, I I really. 
I really can't see. I mean, only Kimmy himself him, himself knows what his plans for 2021 are going to be. But like like you were just saying, Mark, if if this team continues to kind of flounder and struggle, especially with this underpowered uh, Ferrari engine, what is really his uh, motivation to to stay? But uh, again, who knows uh, if uh, you know what sort of uh, offer the team can come up with uh, to keep him there to maybe I don't know help develop the car for twenty twenty two if you know he's interested in that sort of thing. But really, not uh, a good place that they're at. So yeah, I, I would say that. An F is definitely uh, a fair assessment uh, for for Alpha Romeo, and I thought maybe we would wait till right till the very end when kind of go you know Ferrari and Mercedes when we get to the top of the list. But I can't keep it in any longer. I say we go <laughs> over to Ferrari right now, in as we uh, count this all down. Um, the first thing that I, I'm really thinking about, of course, is that well Ferrari obviously an F. I mean, the, the the car is bad, the engine is bad, and I really, I, I can't fault either the drivers. I, I can't fault Charles Leclerc. I can't really fault Sebastian Vettel. They're in a really, really difficult place at the moment uh, to, to try and deliver results in, in the car that they have, and it clearly isn't uh, working. I mean, Charles, I mean, he's had only two points finishes. He had a fourth at the 70th anniversary Grand Prix, eighth at Tuscany three retirements and uh you know it's just uh it looks bad oh sorry he had a second in austria of course he he started very well i mean sebastian two retirements a 12th the 13th and then a couple of low point pain you know finishes he had three p10s a p6 a p7 i mean there's six in the world championship at the moment 66 points and I, I think that both uh, that Sebastian and, and Charles are putting a very brave face on it. I think in the, publicly in the media, they're saying all the right things that, that they need to do and uh, and obviously not, uh, you know, make things look bad for the boss. But uh, I, I think that they've got big troubles there. You know, it, it's funny that uh, you hear Mattia Bonato in the media and, and basically saying, oh, it's just a bit of a rough patch. It's a storm. We're not in crisis. But I, I keep thinking to myself, at the end of the day, you're, you're, you're managing you're the, the team principal of the biggest team in motorsports period they've been in formula one since 1950 they just marked their 1000th grand prix at mugello last weekend and again you, you look at where they were a couple of years ago in the in the world championship i mean going back to, to 2014 I, well i mean going back to 2010 they they finished uh, third in the championship in uh, 2010 2011 2013 again in 2016 and then the past three seasons they were seconds uh, the lowest that they've been in the world championship in the, this past decade is is fourth and that was back in in 2014 when it was the pairing of uh, uh Raikkonen and Alonso and then they had some good years uh, between uh, you know when they had uh, Vettel and Raikkonen I mean the third in uh, in, in 2016 was uh, maybe a little bit but I mean 2018 they were legitimate title contenders and then last year I mean sure they finished uh, second in the in the world championship but they were quite a ways off uh, Mercedes but when you compare last year to this year I mean, it is just, uh, it's really gone sideways. And I think that when you still hear people like Christian Horner and Total Wolf, every once in a while, you know, they get a little bit salty or they drop those comments about, you know, the secret agreement that Ferrari had with the FIA over what was inside, what was going on with that power unit last year. I think that says a lot. And uh, I, I think you you can just read between the lines there that, 
obviously th- there was something there that that was maybe in a little bit of a, a gray area when it came to the technical rules. I mean, you had a couple of technical directives that were issued at the last end of last year. And then all of a sudden, you just see where they are, just lacking pace. We know that the aerodynamics on that car haven't been good, but all they did have that, that powerful engine. I mean, look at uh, where we were a year ago. Look at that win that Charles Leclerc had at Monza, that uh, despite he had the two Mercedes cars tag-teaming him the entire la- or around the entire uh, uh, race distance, neither Lewis Hamilton or Valtteri Bottas could actually get to a point where they could make a serious pass on him because every time they got to those long fast sections, which is about three quarters of the way around Monza, Charles was just able to accelerate away from them. And you look at them this year. I mean, it is just night and day, Mark. This, I I think there's really only one word and I'm I'm trying to be, I'm trying to keep my language clean, but I I think (laughs) the only word that comes to mind that I can say on this podcast is it's absolutely shocking where this team is. And for somebody like Matteo Bonato to say, hey, we're not in crisis mode is complete and utter nonsense. This team is fundamentally broken. They're broken in the way that they develop their power unit. They're broken in the way that they develop their chassis. They're broken in the way that they manage their driver relationships. And it's they're also broken in the way that they treat their drivers. And let's be very, very, very clear here. They did not do Sebastian Vettel the service he deserved when they clearly articulated to him at some point, and it's still unclear, at some point during the offseason, they'd come to the conclusion that they were not going to renew his contract, that he was not going to be an option for them in 2021. What is becoming increasingly clear is that prior to communicating that to him, they'd already started having conversations with other drivers. So right from the beginning, this guy who's been a part of this team since 2015, he's competed for titles. Uh, he'd worked very hard for this team. He's absolutely phenomenal when it comes to media requirements and all those other kind of pieces. He's a good guy. He's on side. He's marketable. He's charismatic. He works well with the team. They did him dirty. So yeah, right I, from the I start, agree. like yeah. th- it's not it's not great. It's not a great look to this team. And then to your point, the other major revelation was that secret agreement between the FIA and Ferrari. And I think what drives me crazy is, you know what, all these other team principals can make these kind of off-the-cuff snide comments, but they didn't do enough when that agreement came out. They weren't loud enough. They didn't bang on the door enough. They should have been in Paris knocking down the door of the FIA to understand what that secret agreement was and how it came to be. Because to your point, Obviously, something changed in that power unit midway through the season last year, and you could see it. They ran off six consecutive poles at one point. They won three consecutive races, and if they'd competed at that level at the beginning of the season, they would potentially have won the championship. But the reality is there was clearly something funny going on inside that power unit. For whatever reason, somehow they were caught. There was a secret agreement with the FIA and they effectively had to rebuild that power unit. And that's one of the reasons we're seeing they struggle so much from a a power perspective this year and why their customer teams in Haas and Alfa Romeo are struggling as well. But for me, like I'm frustrated because no team has more incoming capital. No team has greater resources than this team. And for them to perform like this is is atrocious. And, and it's not like it's one thing. It's not that it's just the power unit. It's not that it's just the chassis. It's not just the fact that, hey, you know what? Our drivers aren't getting along, but they're doing none of these things well. And it reflects really poorly on that organization. And the challenge is because so much of the sport in terms of the power unit and the chassis are going to be frozen next year, there's nothing to suggest that things are going to get better until at least 
2022. What we do know, obviously, is Carlos Sainz is going to come and join next year. But for me, this team, and I completely agree with you, is an F. And it's still... It boggles my mind that Charles Leclerc has been able to score two podiums this year. Boggles my mind that with this car and that power unit, he's been able to deliver those types of performances. Absolutely. But I think that uh, Charles Leclerc, I think that uh, you could give him a washing machine and he'd still be able to uh, do something with it. Because you go back to his rookie <laughs> season in Formula One, that C37, I believe it was at the time, the Sauber Alfa Romeo or whatever it was called in that uh, at that time. Uh, he was partnered with Marcus Erickson, and, and Charles clearly was able to get more in terms of performance out of that car, which obviously wasn't the greatest. I mean, it was a, a bit of a rebranded uh, Sauber, you know, kind of that, that transition yeah. between Sauber yeah. and Alfa Romeo. But uh, Charles did an outstanding job. He 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 did more things with that car in qualifying. He kind of cooled off towards the end of the year, but he did more with that car in terms of getting it to, to places in, in qualifying sessions that he shouldn't. He got race results and finishes in that car that he shouldn't have or nobody would have expected to when you compared that to, 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 to his teammate Marcus Erickson. I mean, obviously, there's a, a difference between the type of driver that Charles Leclerc is and, and, and Marcus Erickson is, but I think we're seeing the same thing now. I mean, Sebastian Vettel has been saying that with the Ferrari, that it has no grip, it's very difficult to drive. Charles, you don't hear those things. I, I think that he just has that, uh, you know, that that natural ability to take a car by the scruff of the neck, and he, I think he's just got one of those unteachable, intangible, uh, you know, yeah. talents i guess you could call it that he's able to 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 find something in, in these cars that clearly aren't the best but you know i, I think it is uh, interesting though what what you're just saying that I, what, what uh you know ferrari how they treated seb vettel you know with the, the whole uh you know letting him go and bringing on carlos Sainz and stuff like that you know that this story isn't over i mean the, the the story of sebastian vettel at ferrari is and i mean his time i mean it's it, it's going to be a little bit of a mixed legacy because obviously he had one a number of races was a title contender in a couple of seasons and you know let's be honest he's had his struggles there and the, then the team has let him down at times and then it, it's it's a kind of a a very anticlimactic and kind of sad conclusion to it because obviously he went there to i mean obviously anybody goes to to, to ferrari goes there to win races and hopefully championships and I still think Seb at 33 years old, I think he's still got something in the tank, but I, I think that just the way that we saw the shift in the dynamics within the team uh, last year, certainly, well, dodgy power unit notwithstanding, I mean, the, the real benchmark moment in 2019 is when Charles won at Monza in the way that he did. And I, I think that finally dispelled any discussion who's, whose team that actually was. And I think that the, the the writing was on the wall because, I mean, Seb went off and then he collected uh, uh, Lance Stroll when he came back onto the track, whereas Charles just uh, raced off into the distance to glory and all the Tifosi loved him for it. But still, I, I think that very much like you said, the way that they, they wrapped this up, it wasn't it wasn't tidy. It wasn't cricket. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't the right thing to do by a guy that was such a, a good uh, guy in the team that was, uh, you know, came very close to to winning a championship for them. I mean, 2018, that was his championship to lose, uh, despite how the season ended. And then, um, I mean, he's a four-time world championship, uh, champion, of course. So I think that uh, just the way that Ferrari's heading right now, I think that they're going to be in trouble for a little while here. 
And I think that Seb may actually have the last laugh. I mean, Ferrari's going one way and Racing Point slash Aston Martin is clearly going another way. So it might just work out for him in the end. So I I think that if we're going to go letter grades, I'm going to give them a D minus. They should get an F, but just uh, based on the fact that Charles has been doing things with that car that he shouldn't be doing deserves, uh, I I think it bumps that up a a couple of uh, notches. I, I I agree. I I also and it's so interesting that you bring up that 2018 season and Vettel's legacy is going to be very mixed, right? This is a guy who won a race in 2008 with Toro Rosso. This is a guy that won four consecutive titles with that Renault-powered Red Bull team from 2010 to 2013. There's obviously that transition year in 2014 when it was pretty widely understood that he was going to be leaving Red Bull and joining the Ferrari team. And then he had a five-year run with Ferrari and he didn't deliver the goods. And, And I think the expectation of fans and supporters and Italians globally was that he was going to bring championship glory back to that team. And now Ferrari's in a position where they brought this guy in, they paid him a significant amount of money. To your point, 2018 was his title to win and he got cold down the stretch and he didn't win a race after, after I think, I think the last race he won that season may have been in. Yeah. And then he, and he didn't go cold for the rest of the season, but he really fundamentally underperformed. And I think he's going to have this mixed legacy. Like he's a four-time world champion with Red Bull. He couldn't cash in a championship with Ferrari. The relationship soured. But to your point, maybe he does get the last laugh, right? Like he's going to be transitioning to a team that's Mercedes-powered, that has a massive injection of capital from Lawrence Stroll's consortium. Like ultimately, if if I'm Vettel, you know what? I'm in a much better place now going into 2021 than I would be staying with Ferrari. So I think to your point, he gets the last laugh out of this and he ultimately gets one last shot potentially at at a championship. Absolutely. You, you never know. I mean, uh, I, I'm really, well, we'll get to a uh, racing point in just a moment here, but uh, they, they clearly are going in, in, in different places. I mean, Lauren Stroll has come in with uh, we know, lots of money. I mean, he's serious about it. They, they want this team to be in Formula One for the right reasons and not necessarily just to be there to, to make up the numbers more or less. So it, it's a good place. And I mean, it's, it's, I see a real natural fit uh, with, with the uh, racing point slash Aston Martin and, and Sebastian Vettel. Okay, completely agree. Let's switch over now and talk about uh, Seb Vettel's alma mater. Can you actually call a racing team an (laughs) alma mater? I'm not actually sure, but his former team, which is now Alpha Tauri, the one of the two Honda engined uh, powered teams. And of course, we see uh, a pairing this year of Danny Kvyat and, and Pierre Gasly. And this is a very interesting one because they're just off the, well, basically off uh, fresh off of a win at Monza just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they are currently seventh in the world championship with uh, 53 points. But, you know, there's, it hasn't really been a clean and tidy season. I, I think that Kvyat kind of is where you'd expect Danny Kvyat to be, kind of hovering around the points, paying positions, occasionally scoring points and occasionally not. Uh, he seems to have lost that uh, kind of unpredictable torpedo personality that he had uh, in his first stint in Formula One. But the the guy that I really find interesting is uh, Pierre Gasly, and not just because he won it that, that really bizarre race we saw at Monza a couple of weeks ago, 
But th- there's been a lot of uh, comparisons drawn between Pierre Gasly and 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 uh, Alex Albon in the Red Bull, and how Alex has been underperforming, and Pierre uh, perhaps uh, Pierre has been I wouldn't say overperforming, but maybe performing to the level that uh, we expected him. I mean, there's always going to be a difference between the Alpha Tauri and the Red Bull, even though they're they're basically sister teams. They're two separate uh, two separately designed cars, same power in them. But to, to me, I think Gasly's had, he's reminded me more of 2018 Gasly rather than 2019 Gasly. And I know that they were really stuck. Uh, Red Bull, that is, last year, what with uh, Danny Ricardo unexpectedly deciding to go off and join Renault and then having a lack of guys in the, in the, in the broader organization, in the Red Bull organization, racing family, whatever you want to call it, with enough super license points. So they kind of were a little bit forced to bring Pierre Gasly, I think, into the big team. And I think that perhaps for Pierre, that was a little bit of unfortunate timing. I, I think it was maybe a little bit uh, too soon in his career. I mean, he, he's he's not young, young, like in, in terms, but he is part of that young generation. He's 24 years old now. He'll be 25 in, in, in the new year here. But I, I think he's maybe starting to settle down. And I think those comment or those uh, conversations that are floating out there at the moment, is it time to switch Alex Albon and Pierre Gasly at Red Bull? I think those are legitimate conversations to have. Although I can't really see it happening, I, it sounds to me that uh, that Albon is, uh, you know, they're, they're looking at him more over the long term as a bit of a long term project at Red Bull, and but it, it's it's kind of tough, and I feel a little bit. Uh, I feel a little bit bad for Pierre Gasly because AlphaTauri is clearly a development team, and I just kind of wonder what will happen. I mean, guys clearly don't go to AlphaTauri to race their entire year in Formula, or sorry, their entire career in Formula One, do they? I I completely agree, and I think one of the things that's so remarkable about this Pierre Gasly story is. You talk about, and this is a narrative that's well established. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but this is this is a guy that, to your point, was promoted to the Red Bull team for the 2019 season. Uh, he was shockingly demoted mid-season, despite the fact that he he indicated um, on the record that the team had reassured him countless times, even leading to the summer break, that that wasn't going to happen. Um, it did happen. Uh, he lost a very close friend in Hubert. Um, he his home was broken into and, and vandalized this year. Obviously like all of us he's gone through the pandemic and despite all of that to me he's he still come back as a winner right like I, I think from a, a mental health perspective to go through everything that he went through over the last 18 months and still be in a position to steer the Alpha Tori to a race win um, is a pretty remarkable uh, accomplishment but I, I think one of the things that I, I find and your point is is accurate, right? In the sense that this is a team and this is an organization, when you look at the greater Red Bull racing family, that this is this is an organization that prides itself on its driver academy. They develop all of their drivers. They're not a Renault. They're not a McLaren. They're not a Mercedes. They're not shopping for drivers on the open market. They develop them internally. Max is a product of that driver academy. Daniel Ricciardo is. Daniel Kvyat is. Pierre Gasly is. Alex Albon is. They're all part of that organization. But I think what's really crazy is that when you reflect back on the 2019 season, Gasly's start with Red Bull was relatively strong. Now, if you index his performances both during the race Sunday and during practice and qualifying against Max Verstappen, well, obviously he he doesn't compare. 
But I think what we've seen with Albon is Albon did have a really strong conclusion to the 2019 season. He was very consistent. The only race that was relatively unsuccessful was that 14th place finish towards the end of the season. But ultimately, that was because he made contact with Hamilton and he lost a potential podium as a result. But ultimately, I don't feel that Albon's necessarily performed any better in that Red Bull than Gasly has. But at the same time, given what Gasly's gone through over the last 18 months, given the condition of his mental health, I also don't know that it would necessarily be the best thing for his professional and driving development to go back into a Red Bull car because the argument can be made that the level of intensity and pressure at the Red Bull factory in Milton Keynes is is almost toxic. And that's an organization that builds its cars and develops its cars and caters to Max Verstappen. And, and at the same time, you have, and I thought that was really interesting a couple of weeks ago, but Lewis Hamilton speaking to the media about the fact that Alex Albon doesn't cut it as a driver that's going to help that team win constructors titles. So Albon's now under fire from all angles, much like Gasly was midway through last season. It's, it's a really unique position and I don't envy Gasly but I think he is the story of that team and I think really my other comment about AlphaTauri and I got really two other points here is one I'm really really happy to see the success and you mentioned the Honda power unit a couple of moments ago but obviously Honda came back into F1 after departing after 2009 at the height of the global recession Um, they sold their team they actually had a works team they sold that to Ross Braun they left they came back as an engine provider to McLaren we all know that relationship was highly toxic and it didn't work out. But it's really great to see the success that Honda's been able to have. They've had obviously three, four race wins with the Red Bull team and now to have a win here. I think the the other consideration when it comes to this AlphaTauri piece is we always talk about the second driver on the Red Bull team. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Red Bull team. But Daniel Kvyat to me, this is a guy that's He's been in Formula One longer, I think, than a lot of people realize. He was in the sport in 2014 with Toro Rosso. He joined the Red Bull team in 2015. and 2016, he was demoted, much like Gasly was, in favor of, uh, obviously, Max Verstappen, who went on to win his first race in Spain. 2017, he raced with uh, Toro Rosso. 2018, he was back. And then, shockingly, he was brought back in 2019. But this year, from a performance perspective, he's significantly off the pace and off of the mark that his teammate... Uh, Pierre Gasly setting both in terms of race finishes and points collection, but also in terms of pace and practice and qualifying. So overall, for me, AlphaTauri's probably a strong B. They, they've got a strong marriage with the Honda team. They're doing and they're handling and they're managing Pierre Gasly, right? But I just wonder where this team could be if they had a second driver that was delivering at the same level that Pierre Gasly was. You know, it's kind of funny. I mean, they're almost like the microcosm to the uh, the, the Red Bull macrocosm, right? You, ha- you have yeah, uh, one exactly. clear driver that that, that is doing like the bulk of the work scoring points. But, you know, just the, the, the bigger picture too. I mean, that, that it was always going to be a difficult place for Pierre Gasly to go to because they have just not been able to find that same one-two combination that they had with uh, Max Verstappen and uh, Danny Kvyat. And unless they bring in a, a guy from a, like outside of that organization, outside of the, their academy, if they're bringing somebody up, it's going to be kind of difficult. They're, if, if they're going to bring up their own drivers that they're developing, through the Alpha Tauri pathway in Formula One, it's it's not going to be a quick thing. I mean, nobody's ever going to criticize Red Bull for the decision that they made to switch Verstappen for Danny Kvyat. I mean, Max Never. proved it Never. right right away that uh, that he is a legitimate top elite driver in Formula One, and uh, he, he's he's got the potential to be a world champion if he can get the the right car underneath him. But you know, it it is funny though that uh, that Gasly. I mean, even though he did have 
you know, he had decent finishes, but when you know you're comparing him through the lens of Danny Ricardo before that, before that, uh, you know, b- before 2019, it was always going to be a very, very tough act. But I like what you said to give them a B. I was going to say a C plus, you know, based on the win. Maybe I was pulling a little bit too, too bad or down on the uh, passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. They operated a full-service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted. They tried all kinds of products, but they didn't work. Then they started experimenting with CBD. They loved the effects and regained control of their days and nights, but they wanted better CBD products. So what they did for themselves was specially formulate CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that were super consumable, easy to take on the go, and effective. Long story short, their specially formulated CBD products and vitamins helped relieve the overwhelming angst they felt on a daily basis. So in July 2017, they named the company Sunday Scaries and began sharing their products with friends and launched their online store at sundayscaries.com. With tens of thousands of customers, monthly subscribers, and a 100% money-back guarantee, Sunday Scaries has always been on a mission to transform a worrisome nation into a chill one. And right now, we have a bonus for you. Get 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Again, 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Uh, maybe on, on, on the Kvyat side of things, but I, th- I think that's uh, I think it's a fair shout. I, I think that uh, they're, they're right in there thereabouts. I think they're doing good for what uh, you would expect uh, from them. Now let's talk about Renault, one of the uh, the only um, uh, one of only a couple of manufacturers that build cars and engines in Formula One, and this is a team for me that uh, they've really kind of stagnated in Formula One. They, they they've been in now for several years in this current uh, format. Uh, they came back in 
in 2016, and they obviously have a, a number of years' experience under the belt. Okay, the first year that they were in was just a, re, a rebadged uh, Lotus, but they, they started off, and they, they didn't have the strongest pairing of Kevin Magnuson and Jolly and Palmer. Then you had uh, they had uh, Nico Hulkenberg and Palmer, and then Carlos Sainz came in there after that weird kind of switcheroo. And anyways, they, now their second year with Danny Ricardo, first year with Ricardo and Esteban Ocon. For me, I think that uh, the, the last several races, I, I think that maybe I haven't given them a bit of the respect that, that they deserve. Um, maybe I've been maybe a little bit too, too harsh on them because... 2016, they were ninth in the world championship. They only had eight points, which you would kind of uh, you know expect when they were just taking over an existing team. You know, it, it's going to take time to get it up and running. 2017, sixth in the world championship. 2018, very solid year for them with Hulkenberg and Science as that pairing. Fourth in the world championship with 122 points. Last year, they kind of regressed a little bit. They lost, uh, you know, they they lost opportunities to score points because they had both cars disqualified in Japan. And for me, it was a bit of a step backwards. They were only fifth in the championship last year with 91 points, but this year they're they're on at at the moment they're fifth with 83 points. And when you look at the the results that uh, that we've seen from Ricardo, okay, he didn't uh, finish. He did, he retired in Austria. Then he had a, an eighth at the Styrian Grand Prix in Hungary, fourth at the the British Grand Prix, and then two not very impressive results: a fourteenth at the seventieth anniversary Grand Prix, eleventh in Spain. But since then, fourth in Belgium, sixth in Italy. Fourth in uh, at Mugello last weekend, and Esteban Ocon, uh, during that time, he was six and uh, six and eighth at the two races at Silverstone. Thirteenth in Spain, again, not a great weekend for them as a whole. And then fifth in Belgium, eighth in uh, Italy, and then he was well, he, he retired after one of the many stop starts <laughs> incidents we had at Mugello last weekend. I mean, eighty three points right now. I don't know really if they're, they're at this point now where they're they're starting to trend upwards. I would like to think that they are. I mean, certainly over the past three races, it appears to be that way. <clears throat> Excuse me, but uh, we'll have to see whether or not this trend continues. But over the short term, I'm starting to like what I'm seeing from Renault. They just need to to, to prolong it and become consistent. One of the things I think that's really remarkable about this season is... Renault's in in something of a state of flux, and we, we didn't necessarily know this going into the season, but for those of you that don't know, uh, Renault's going to be rebranding the team Alpine F1 going into next season, but they're potentially going to have an entirely new driver lineup, and I, I think one of the things that's really remarkable about this season is we now know, or we knew at least early on, that Daniel Ricciardo was going to depart. He's going to go and join the McLaren team back in the UK. I think one of the things that I was very concerned about, and this is one of the things that makes Formula One so unique, especially for us sports fans in North America, we're used to our contract status in Major League Baseball and the NBA and the NHL and the NFL being cut and dry. You cannot negotiate a contract with a new team until your existing contract expired. If you do, there's penalties, there's financial ramifications, it's ugly. So it's really interesting for us in North America to see drivers compete for a team when they're already under contract for a team the following year. And I was really, really curious 
curious to see what that relationship was going to look like this year, particularly in terms of the Cyril Abitable and uh, Daniel Ricardo relationship. But despite the fact that it's well established that he's leaving, the relationship this year has been very, very good. And, and obviously, we've we've seen all the commentary recently about the fact that Daniel Ricardo has a bet with Abitable, and if Daniel gets a podium, uh, Cyril's going to get a tattoo, and he's going to get to decide where it goes. But but Daniel gets to decide the creative and the size. Like it's <laughs> it's really interesting that that relationship is still so strong. And for the longest time, I couldn't I couldn't commit to believing that this team was genuinely on the upswing. Like we've seen some starts and some stops with this team. And I, I think finally they've got the formula right. I think, you know, we know going into next season, they're not going to have a customer team. They're not going to be selling motors. So I think all of the resources that they have in terms of F1 development on the power unit side and on the chassis and the aerodynamics and driver development, it's all going to be concentrated on their works team. So I, I think that's going to be positive for them. I think the back half of the season is really going to set up 2021. But 2021 is going to be pretty interesting because obviously you're going to be reintroducing Fernando Alonso and we know what that relationship was like with McLaren. I think for me, the bigger question is really about Esteban Ocon. And I've been a bit down on Esteban this year. I, I had high hopes for him coming back and that this is a guy that could really push Daniel Ricciardo and you know what, uh, collaboratively, they could be competing for podiums or at least chasing in McLarens on a consistent basis. But I couldn't remember quite why I was so high on Esteban Ocon. And, and I went back and looked at some of his performances. Like if you go back and you look at his 2017 season with Force India, and again, this was about a year before, six months before the Lawrence Stroll consortium acquisition, but his 2017 season with Force uh, Force India was absolutely remarkable. Short of a retirement in Brazil and an 18th place finish, 12th place finish in Montreal, he was in the points every single race. Like this is a guy that's clearly capable of driving a Formula One car. He's he's also French. And so from a marketing perspective, it should be a perfect marriage. But I, I completely agree with you that I think we've seen enough so far this season to be confident that this team is from a trajectory place going in the right direction. The power unit seems to work. Uh, the aerodynamics seem to work. Um, I think the real question next year is what kind of fit is Fernando going to be, uh, especially if the team sputters to start. But I like what I see this year, and, and I'm kind of sad that Daniel Ricciardo is not going to be there to be a part of it because his relationship with the team seems to be in a really, really good place despite the fact that they know his departure is imminent. Yeah, you know, that is kind of a funny one, too. I mean, clearly, a couple of years ago, when, when Danny Rick had announced that he was leaving Red Bull, and he was going to go to Renault. At that point, you could honestly, you, you, you were, you just knew that that was going to be a step backwards, going from an established uh, top three team to a team that was still a work in progress. But now you fast forward to 2020. And now Danny Rick is leaving Renault to go to McLaren which may actually turn out to be a lateral kind of a sidestep kind of move. It's going to be very, very interesting because, I mean, these two teams are very close in terms of the constructors. Uh, McLaren have turned things around wonderfully over the past couple of years ago compared to where they were with uh, with, with Honda. And, of course, we know after, like you were saying just uh, just now, they're going back to, to Mercedes power next year. It, it's going to be, it, it, there's this is a really fascinating situation to, to, to watch. And, you know, the thing is, it's like, 
like you were just saying too, was what is that introduction or reintroduction of Fernando Alonso in that team going to do to the uh, to the chemistry? Because we know that Fernando is a big personality, casts a big shadow, yeah. <laughs> and you, you know, I mean, it's all kind of a little bit lighthearted with uh, Abita Bull and uh, Ricardo and the whole tattoo thing, you know, <laughs> like you nicely explained just now. It's just that uh, if things are going well, then I, I think that the, the the atmosphere with uh, Fernando there will be good. But if they if they regress a little bit or they struggle a little bit next year, or they don't progress as forward uh, as much as some of the other cars do on the development of these cars for twenty twenty one, then who knows how that uh, dynamic will, will will play out. But I would say that uh, based on what we've seen right now, I mean they're not really setting F one alight. But I'd say I give them a solid C plus i think that uh that they've done something good there's still um, a lot of room for improvement but i i think that uh you know <laughs> chickens and eggs uh you know start to jump into mind here is it, it, risking it getting ahead of myself i do like what i'm seeing in general so if they continue on this uh you know trajectory then they may be uh okay so c plus it is for me yeah i i couldn't agree more with that assessment i think that's I think that's bang on. And and I liked also that you spoke to the fact that for a couple of years there, it really felt, and I don't want to use kind of a sporting racing pun, but it really felt like they were spinning their wheels. They've got a little bit of traction right now, and, and hopefully they'll be able to continue to build that momentum. I, I also wonder now, and this is me just putting my racing fan cap on, but I also have to wonder sometimes if that Fernando signing was really just a marketing exercise and that maybe the teams farther along the development of that power unit and that chassis than maybe they thought they were going to be and and that bringing Fernando in next year was really just going to be a a marketing exercise, attract some sponsors, create some exposure. And now all of a sudden they're in a position where they may have a relatively competitive car Fernando to step into. And suddenly we're going to be judging the performance of that team next year, not based on the quality of the power unit in the car but hey is fernando going to be able to drive that car to the limits given that he's going to be 40 but again going back to this year completely agree i think c plus is a a really fair score and i think this team's on an upward trajectory which is really nice Absolutely. Now let's uh, move uh, a little bit uh, further up the grid and let's talk about Racing Point. So uh, they have made a lot of headlines in Formula One this year, both on and off the track. Last year, Racing Point, they were seventh in the world championship with 73 points. After nine races this year, they are currently fourth in the world championship with 92 points. And well, you look at uh, Sergio Perez. He's uh, he missed a couple of races, but every race that he's entered this year, he has scored points. And when he uh, missed the seventieth, uh, sorry, the Spanish Grand Prix, uh, Nico Hulkenberg, who filled in for him, he came in uh, came seventh, which I think was great. Unfortunately, it didn't uh, work out. Uh, oh, sorry, that was the seventieth anniversary Grand Prix. And then of course, uh, Nico uh, wasn't able to make the start because of those uh, unfortunate mechanical circumstances. But then you look at Lance, he's uh, he retired twice. Unfortunately, he had a big crash at Mugello last weekend. That was a scary accident, the way he hit the tire wall. But uh, the week before that at uh, Monza, he was on the podium, second podium of his uh, career. And uh, Lance has uh, scored uh, all the races or in all the races that he's uh, completed this year, and so they're they're looking good. I mean, this this whole pink Mercedes thing is a real fascinating uh, you know, situation to watch. That after all the discussion that they had about uh, you know 
know that how similar it was to last year's Mercedes W10 that the what it really came down to was the brake ducts you know <laughs> and then you hear like Otmar Safnauer the, the the team principal saying okay well we did copy the, the the principles and when we started to 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 work with it we went a long way backwards before we started to, you know making progress and the car looks good it is clearly competitive and it's uh, I, I think that they've really turned a lot of heads uh, and it, it it is funny though in a sport where where somebody seems to find something that works how everybody else seems to jump on it but when it comes to something that is almost I guess as blatant as copying that like the outward design or you know Eric dynamic uh, you know philosophy of another team that seems to have been completely offside with the other nine teams in Formula One oh, really? and I, I find it so funny after all that that uh, it came down to okay well we, we can't really get them on anything else but the brake ducks that's where they're exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> it's uh. interesting it is it is quite the situation but you know I, I, it is it is a good story to to see because it's it's always been a, a fascinating team to watch because when, when you look at them and, and I've said it many times over the years that this is a team that's always punched above their weight even when they're Force India okay well they, they may have not have been on the podium and stuff like that but where they were, I mean, they have always had fairly humble and meager resources, and they've always seemed to do more with less. And that's why I think it's going to be a, you know, a fascinating team to watch over the next uh, couple of years now that they're going to be a, a, a big team. You know, they've, they've got real money coming in. They've got real backing coming in. They're, they're going to be Aston Martin's works team. And I, I really can't wait to see where this team is at, uh, not just uh, next year, but in 2022 when they have, uh, you know, the, I guess the, the first legitimate uh, Aston Martin car. And it's it's going to be a fun project to watch to see where they go. And uh, they, they certainly have uh, turned a lot of heads uh, this year. And, I, you know, I, I, I can't see any other reason than to, to give them an A-. minus. You know, I, I'm being very, very kind to them, but... They deserve it in a year where it's been a struggle for a lot of teams. You can understand why. I mean, there, there's a lot of things going on around the world that have affected everyone. And uh, of course, Formula One is a very sensitive when it comes to things like funding. And this isn't a team that previously had a lot of money to begin with. But to, to be fourth in the world championship at the moment and and, and doing the things that they are and, and being there and and kind of really shaking things up, I, th- I think that it's it's a good story for Formula One. I honestly think we could spend an entire podcast talking about not only where Racing Point is right now, but where they're going to be in a year or two. And I think it's really remarkable when you think that this team is just two years removed from administration, that this team was on a brink and this team was at the point where they were almost required to terminate their entire factory staff. Lawrence Stroll, his consortium stepped in. Uh, Obviously, he'd been close to the Williams team because that's where his son was racing. Obviously, in many ways, this is a vanity project to give his son an opportunity to race in Formula One. Although I would argue, especially given the fact that he's an F3 champion, that this kid deserves a racing seat. And I think we're beginning to see that more and more every single day. But this has been a, a really interesting season. Right from 
winter testing when they rolled in in that, to your point, that quote unquote pink Mercedes and everyone's tongues were wagging. Like, what is this? It's identical. And you could see the memes and F1 Twitter was going crazy and F1 Reddit was going crazy. And and they were relatively strong in winter testing, uh, but they've been exceptionally strong right from the beginning of the season. And you know what? If not for the fact that Lance had that unfortunate crash due to a mechanical failure um, at the last race, this is a team that would have an excess probably of 110 points. And if you add back in the 15 points they lost because of their violation of the regulations, this is a team that would be very close to second in the Constructors' Championship. Like, this team is doing a lot of things really, really, really well. To your point, like... I'm a bit of a homer, and given the fact that this is largely a Canadian-owned team, they're British licensed because they're based out of Silverstone in the UK, and it makes things easy. Um, but I'm a bit of a homer because they have a Canadian driver, they have a, principally a Canadian owner, they're doing a lot of things well. But a couple of things this year that really did upset me. Um, one was one was the way that entire Sergio Perez situation was handled. I, I think a lot of the teams have done a very good job of isolating and putting their team. So I'm talking their front end, their front office. I'm talking about their engineers, their mechanics, their drivers. They're putting them in these bubbles. And I know it's not comfortable, but I think the teams and the employees understand that, hey, what's at stake here is a championship. And I, I get it and I appreciate that ultimately Sergio had some family obligations, but I think it was very, very risky that the team allowed him to fly to Mexico, that they allowed him to do it in a way that wasn't necessarily, uh, I would say, entirely contained. They allowed him to be put in a position where he could be exposed to the virus. He ultimately was. He came back to the paddock and, of course, at this point, to get into the paddock, you have to go through some extensive medical testing and things like that. But ultimately, they allowed him to be put into a position where he was exposed. He came back. He was infected. He missed two races. But I think the other thing that really drove me crazy was how adamant and how aggressively they were fighting to get him back into the car. And it wasn't necessarily clear from a FIA perspective, from a Formula One perspective, from a British civil law perspective what the timing was that would be appropriate to put him back in the car. But I was upset that he himself chose to leave the bubble and go to Mexico, which is definitely a COVID hotspot. I was upset that the team allowed that. And then they supported the fact that he did that. I didn't like the fact that they were so rushed to get him back into the car, especially when you had that great Nico Hulkenberg story. So I, I, I say ultimately it's an A1 or an A-. minus. I think there's a blemish because of the way that entire Sergio situation was handled. But I also think we shouldn't forget as well that Nico's first race back was a write-off because they couldn't get the car started. And, and I think for a team like this at this level of motorsports, that's embarrassing and that has to be that has to be penalized. So for me, like I, I would say an A minus, but it's probably a B plus simply because of the way some of these things were handled. But again, I think the upside, the trajectory for this team is phenomenal. And then the other story that really came out of this team this year was it's been speculated obviously for months that there was going to be a potential marriage between Sebastian Vettel and the Racing Point slash Aston Martin team. And obviously that puts Sergio in a really peculiar position because he's in the middle of a three-year contract. He's been with this team since 2014. He helped get the team through administration. Um, And ultimately it became clear and clear and clear that his time was coming to a close. 
I don't know. So Sergio says, Sergio says that he didn't know about the Sebastian Vettel deal until the day before Vettel's deal was actually announced. I don't necessarily believe that, but I think the way that situation was handled wasn't great. But at the same time, if I'm Lawrence Stroll and I'm investing hundreds of millions of dollars into Aston Martin as an automotive manufacturer to keep them stable and to get them through the COVID crisis, and if I'm investing hundreds of millions of dollars into my F1 vanity project ultimately if there's a formula former world champion that's available to come and join my team i want him on my team and that said i think even when sergio has been in the car this year i don't know that he's necessarily been better than stroll and i would argue that strolls had a much better season when you can actually compare compete or compare them weekend to weekend if you know what i mean yeah, and, and that's uh, it's very interesting. I mean, it, it, the whole like the the whole Sebastian Vettel saga, if you want to call it that, that that's an interesting story to watch as well. Because Seb was very chill about it. He was kind of like, yeah, well, you know, th- those talks happened. I can't deny it. And he was very casual about it. And then he was he was even just uh, two three weeks ago, as recently as that, was just uh, basically saying. Well, yeah, I don't really know what to, what my future is, uh, but you know, I'll probably have some news very very soon, but as some of these um, other say legitimate or logical um, race seats kind of filled up, it was really the last uh, opportunity I think for Sebastian Vettel because we'd never see him go to a Haas or an Alfa Romeo exactly, or anything like exactly. that. It would just Completely it just agree. yeah, it wouldn't happen. And it so it was I thought it was a little bit kind of ironic too, because the way that uh, that that uh, Sergio Perez talked about his uh, confirmation in in leaving Racing Point was also very similar to the way that uh, Vettel was uh, confirmed. Sort of that that came out the way that <laughs> so he true. was. It was it was it was very very bizarre the way that those two situations mirrored themselves. But yeah, I mean, if you look at uh, some of the results, uh, Perez he's had a couple of six uh, place finishes, a seventh, a fifth, a couple of tens, and uh, and a P five. Uh, whereas Lance, um, he's had a seventh, a fourth, a ninth, a sixth, a fourth, a ninth, and a third. So, you know, about the same. But if you give, if you just look at it in, in terms of the uh, finishes, I think that uh, just if you average them all out, uh, Lance is, uh, you know, he he scored better in the races. And like you say, I mean, if they had those fifteen points added back in that was deducted after the uh, you know the, the protest and they were finally found uh, guilty and being in contravention of the rules, and some of the points that they've lost along the way. They could be ahead of a McLaren. I mean, they, you know, they're only about fourteen or fifteen points behind them, the constructors as it is. So McLaren, I think that uh, that they're probably looking over their shoulders uh, somewhat nervously for the last uh, run of races here before the end of the year. And I think that's a nice segue too, because uh, McLaren is actually the next team on our list here, and I. I, I've been very complimentary towards McLaren on, on on the podcast over the past year or so, because after they really hit their low point with with Honda a couple of years ago, say under that Eric Boulier regime, that once you know, you had Zach Brown in there, kind of come in from the outside and slowly but surely put the right people in the right uh, positions, the right jobs within the team that they are starting to go back to where they belong. Because under Honda, uh, during that uh, that era, it was all like, oh no, the car is great. We got one of the best uh, cars and one of the best chassis in Formula One. It's it, it's not the car, but then it, you know they, they ate a little bit of crow, a little bit of humble pie, and then actually admitted, yeah, the chassis actually isn't as good as we admitted. 
And then there was a, they were a little bit more forth, uh, forthcoming with that sort of thing. But then you get guys like Andreas Seidel into the team. You get guys like James Key. And you can go on and go through some of the, 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 the list of some of the people that have come in here. Not to mention the fact that you've got um, a couple of very good drivers in Lando Norris. Carlos Sainz, I think, is a very good driver. Probably, uh, you know, privately at night, maybe when he's uh, about to drop off to sleep, is maybe second-guessing his uh, upcoming move to Ferrari. But, you know, uh, it, it really, for me, is a case in point that if you put the right people or get the right people in an organization and let them do their jobs, then good things uh, will, will will happen. And I think that uh, even though they're, they're not currently consistently legitimately uh, uh, fighting for podiums they're getting close and I, I think that this is definitely a team to watch I mean we're seeing how tight the midfield is in Formula One and and the McLaren story it's 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 definitely not over it's it's going to be one that we're going to be watching with great interest going to next year with the the, the Mercedes Lando, I really like this guy. I think he's a good driver. You know, on still again very young guy, only second year in Formula One, and it, it's going to be a very, it's going to be a, a cool dynamic to to see. I think that partnership of Lando Norris and Danny Ricardo in twenty twenty one. I don't know what it is. I just get this feeling that that is a partnership that's going to work. And you get to get the combination of a Mercedes engine, which we know is going to be good. I mean, that's just a given. And the car that themselves, that that they've been building better cars over the last couple of years. I think there's a lot of good things there. And how it all kind of comes together in 2021 is going to be, uh, I think it's going to be really cool to see. But this year, I'd have to say just uh, based on what we've seen, I'd give them a, a, a B. And I, I really like, uh, I, I like what I'm seeing from McLaren. And uh, certainly Lando has uh, had his moments. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, he, he really is one of these uh, drivers uh, for, for the future. It's, uh, you know, it it is... I don't really, <laughs> I I kind of become like a little bit of a homer when it comes to uh, to, to McLaren, but certainly when you, when you look at where they are right now, third in the world championship, uh, Lando's finished all the races, all but one race, he's uh, he's finished uh, in the points. Of course, he got on the podium in, in Austria. He also had the fastest lap that race. And then it, it's been a little bit to hit and miss for, uh, for, for Carlos Sainz. He's been out of the points a couple of times. He didn't start in Belgium. He retired, uh, obviously and all the chaos we saw at Mugello. But then he was fighting for the lead uh, the, the week before in Monza. So he's definitely had his moments at well. And I think for me, where McLaren is right now, it is the... It's it's the result of a, a lot of um, a lot of pain that they've been through in recent history, but also the results of some some good work that uh, that they've uh, that they've had. And I mean, you know, third in the world championship, fourth last year. I mean, you go back twenty seventeenth, ninth with only thirty points in the constructors. I mean, that's almost unheard of. Twenty fifteenth, ninth in the world championship with twenty seven points. I mean, it's just shocking, shocking stuff compared to to where they were. I mean, back in twenty twelve. They were third in the championship and runners-up in 2010 and 2011. And it just goes to show you how cruel Formula One can be. But again, very much like Renault, they are a team trending in the right direction. And if they, they keep going in the right direction at the rate that they're going at, I mean, it really makes it difficult for the teams that are way down at the uh, at the bottom of Formula One. But I would say for, for me, based on where they're at, I'd, I'd give them a B plus. I'd say for me, that's, that's, a, that's a solid B plus. I think this is a team that has 
a lot to look forward to. And I, I think you did a great job of kind of framing and positioning where the team is now. And I, I think organizationally, they did some really great things over the course of the last three or four years. You know, they, they finally waved goodbye to Ron Dennis. And this is a guy that had obviously been a big part of the organization for a very long time, but he wasn't working for kind of the growth of a positive, um, kind of young, progressive culture. He had to go, to your point, Zach Brown has come in, and from a personnel perspective and from a financial perspective, he's made a lot of really great decisions. And I think the departure of Fernando Alonso at the end of the 2018 season was really like a cloud that was lifted from this organization. And I think the anxiety and the stress and the pressures that I think the engineers and the mechanics and the team at the factory felt kind of evaporated. So you went into this 2019 season and suddenly all of the expectations all of the stresses were gone. You had a young, talented driver in Carlos Sainz. You had a 19-year-old driver in Lando Norris. And to your point, they had a really strong season powered with that Renault un- power unit. They finished fourth. This year, you know, we, we know and you mentioned that this is the last year that they're going to have that Renault partnership. Uh, but they're currently third in the World Drivers Championship. And I think that's, or sorry, World Constructors Championship. And I think that's a really great place for them to be. And I think ultimately they should be really happy with that. And I think one of the things that's really remarkable about the finish is that when you are a customer team, so when you're buying a power unit from a different team, so if you're buying your engines from Honda or Mercedes or Renault, part of that package is you typically get a ton of complimentary resources. You get uh, engineers, you get mechanics, you get specialists, they travel with your team, they're embedded in your factory. Factory, they're embedded in your, your paddock. But one of the things that's been very clear this year is that Renault's all but completely cut off support to that power unit. So Mercedes or sorry, McLaren is out there running a Renault powered car without any support from Renault themselves. So I think what they're doing is absolutely remarkable. And, and they're doing all of this despite the fact that organizationally, financially, McLaren's in a really tough position right now. This is a team that had to pull a 150-pound loan from the National Bank of Bahrain during the summer to to stay afloat. This is the team that's in the process of selling their factory with the hope of being able to lease it back. This is a team that's shedding resources, shedding assets, unfortunately shedding uh, personnel to stay financially stable going forward. But despite all of that noise in the background about the financial well-being of the organization, when I talk about the organization. I'm talking McLaren greater than just the Formula One team. I'm talking about the road cars and everything that goes with that. But despite all of that, they've been able to do a really good job of building a bubble around the team and allowing it to excel. And again, it's unfortunate that Carlos Sainz is leaving, but you're going to replace him with a larger than life marketable asset in Daniel Ricciardo. And I think Carlos Sainz is great, I think he will be forgotten very quickly, especially if Daniel Ricciardo can come in and compete with compete for podiums. And you also know that one of the things that's so great about Daniel Ricciardo is he's a great teammate. And again, it didn't work out with him and Max for a lot of reasons. And I think a lot of that was mismanagement by the Red Bull organization. But this is a guy that gets along with Ocon. He's got along with other drivers. And I think one of the things that's special about the Carlos Sainz Norris pairing is they are such a great tandem. They have a lot of fun. They share their experiences on social media. They joke around a lot. But I really think in that respect, 
Daniel Ricardo is going to be plug and play. He's going to be able to plug right into this organization, right into this culture. And if they're able to get some time in winter testing to pair that Mercedes power unit, this is a team that could see even further growth next year. And what's really important is as long as Ferrari is floundering, there's constructors points and championship points all over the place and they can pick up those points and they can cash in at the end of the season and continue to build the financial equity into that team that they need to be competitive going forward but I think they're in a good place I think their future is incredibly bright despite all the financial noise and I'm so excited to see what this team looks like next year with the Mercedes power unit and Daniel Ricciardo. Well, you know, the one thing that's uh, different uh, about, say, uh, Mercedes and McLaren compared to Honda and uh, McLaren that we saw several years ago, because I I grew up in that generation when um, uh, McLaren Honda was like the, you know, that was like the package, you know, Ayrton Senna, Alan Prost and all the amazing things that they did way back then. But of course, Honda came into it when they were clearly much further behind the development of the V6 turbo hybrids. But McLaren getting back the the, the Mercedes uh, engines for next year, it's a proven power unit. I, I just think that, uh, that that there's a lot of things uh, going that are lining up uh, nicely for them. And I think that uh, they could re- really be ones, uh, ones to watch uh, for next year. Definitely. Well, next year's a bit of a, an unknown because we're kind of in this weird you know, limbo at the moment, uh, just because of COVID and the the the, the delay of the new uh, the new formula that's not coming in until 2022. So, you know, it, it is interesting though too the way where they're at right now. I mean, they're really downplaying where they thought they were going to be for 2020, and it's kind of turned out for to sure. be a little bit uh, different than than expected. So. Now we've been through eight of the other teams. We got uh, two more to go, two of the big ones, of course. We're going to talk first about Red Bull and uh, Max, Versta- uh, Max Verstappen and Alex Albon. Alex, uh, we've already touched on a little bit when we talked about uh, Alpha Tauri and, uh, and Pierre Gasly and that uh, dynamic and how that's been uh, one to keep an eye on this year. Red Bull, I mean, they, they're... They're funny. Like uh, if you go back to the off season, the prolonged off season that we had, you had Christian Horner saying, "Okay, well, we're actually the most prepared that we've been for a world championship since something like 2013, and almost a decade." Yeah. And yeah. I mean, to go back that far, I mean, that's the last time that they won uh, a, a world championship. I mean, we're going back a, a long, long ways here, right? And it, it, it's really kind of. It's it's almost a little bit anticlimactic to to, to think about it uh, that uh, that he said that I mean, and it's a bit weird to say that they're underperforming. I mean, they're 173 points in the world championship at the moment. They're currently second, but that's because there's a lack of anybody else. I mean, you got Renault, you've got McLaren, you've got uh, Racing Point, those sort of teams that aren't really able to bridge the gap between them and and Red Bull. And Red Bull is kind of funny too because you look at Max. Um, you know, he, he's had a handful of retirements. I mean, he hasn't finished the last two races. He's had problems with the Honda, which is quite worrying. And then he's been on the podium every race that, uh, that, that he's finished this year. Uh, he won the 70th anniversary Grand Prix, of course, when uh, Mercedes uh, had all those issues uh, with, with the, the, the graining and the, the, the delaminating tires and all that. But it's, they're there almost by default when you think about it, because Ferrari's a non-factor. Everybody else isn't quite close enough. Elmon is not really in the position to challenge his teammate. 
And Max, when he's out there on the track during the races, he he's close, but he's not quite close enough. No matter what he tries, he's almost at arm's length, especially to Lewis. I, I think that if you, you took Lewis Hamilton out of Formula One and just removed him out of that picture, I think it'd be going back and forth between Valtteri Bottas and Max Verstappen, because regardless, it's a, a Valtteri and the Mercedes and Max and the Red Bull, I think that they're just... Uh, they're they're more evenly matched, but then you get that perfect combination of Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton, who's clearly at another level that you know he just completely disappears, not just uh, from Max but from his own teammate. But it, it's it's a funny one for me. They've been okay. They haven't really impressed me a lot, apart from the 70th anniversary Grand Prix, where you know that they made some bold decisions. Max made some bold decisions, and it really worked out on a day when the Mercedes were clearly struggling. But apart from that, they haven't really blown my socks off all year. I, I don't know about you, but that that's just my impression, anyways. I. You know, I, I completely agree with your assessment uh, about Red Bull. And I also like the fact, and I think this is going to become a story that is probably a little bit downplayed right now. Uh, but I'm, I'm a big Honda fan. I've been very happy with what they've been able to deliver to Toro Rosso slash Alpha Tori uh, the last couple of years, because obviously they started providing the power units to that team a year in advance of the senior team and Red Bull. Um, I, I like the fact that they've been able to collaborate and win some races, but I'm a little bit worried about what I I've seen from that power unit this year. And I yeah. think generally what's speculated is that to satisfy Max and to satisfy Red Bull, Honda is running an engine map that is creating thermal dynamics within a motor that is not capable of supporting the pressures and the dynamics that the map is pushing. And I think what we're going to continue to see is pressure from Max and Red Bull for Honda to deliver more and more power. And Honda's not in a position where they can go back to the drawing board and redesign the mechanical internals of that motor. And they're going to continue to push that engine map to create more and more power via software. And I think that's going to create these situations where there's a lack of reliability and it's going to create a frustrated Max. And and I'd read a story earlier today as well that the Red Bull team plans to meet with Honda and meet with Max to provide some confidence and to provide some guidance about the fact that, hey, what we've experienced so far from a reliability perspective isn't going to persist. But you very clearly heard Max on the radio becoming increasingly frustrated with some of the reliability experiences he's had with that motor. Even in races where he's competed pretty well, he's been very vocal on the radio about a lack of power, a lack of power delivery, the way that the power is being delivered out of the corner, the lack of electrical power that's being delivered. He's not satisfied with the package. And I think overall, we should probably be pretty happy with the fact that Honda went from that relationship with McLaren that was really problematic and toxic to mm-hmm. delivering race wins for this team but for Red Bull it never seems to necessarily be enough but I I agree with you like I I almost think that as much as Albon's podium was by default in the Tuscan GP and I believe it was and again he earned it he deserved it forget the fact that 80% of the drivers didn't finish the race <laughs> he he earned it but I think it was almost by default and I think the same thing this year where Ferrari really, when you talk about the resources that team has and the talent of their drivers, really they should be in second place right now. And I'm almost a little bit disappointed that despite the fact that Ferrari's completely non-existent, that this is all this team's been able to put together. You know, Max has a handful of podiums and he has a race win. Elbon's been and again, strictly on paper, the finishes don't look terrible. You know, a fourth, a fin, a fifth, an eighth, a fifth, an eighth, a sixth, that 15th place finish in the Italian Grand Prix and then the podium in the Tuscan GP. But when you index his 
finishes against his teammate, Max Verstappen. It's not like he's a place or two behind and five or 10 seconds back. In some of these races, he's being lapped by Max. Like His performance relative to his teammate is fundamentally unacceptable. And I think the challenge for this team, as we talked about this when we were talking about AlphaTauri, is that from a Driver Academy perspective, the pipeline's pretty dry right now. And this is also not an organization that leans into signing free agent drivers or acquiring talent outside of their their Driver Academy. So they're kind of in a tough place. They could do that driver swap mid-season. We know that would just create confusion and noise and media hysteria. Maybe they do it during the off-season. But overall, I've been pretty underwhelmed with the team And then I see these, like I said, these worrying signs of friction between Red Bull and Honda. And if there was any, if there's any word to kind of sum up the the relationship between Red Bull and Renault, even during the championships years, it was friction. They were winning. It was friction. They weren't winning. It was friction. Renault wanted out of that agreement. Red Bull wanted out of the agreement. And the only reason that relationship didn't end earlier is because Red Bull wasn't able to secure the agreement for a Mercedes power unit that they so desperately wanted. So it dragged on for a couple of years. But unfortunately, I'm starting to see those worrying signs here as well. And I have to wonder as well, Max has been strong this year. Like we said, he's got a couple of podiums. It makes me wonder how capable this car is relative to what a phenomenal talent Max Verstappen might be. And that's not clear to me, but my belief is that Max is a next level talent that is taking a good car with a good power unit, but he's delivering results that are our next level. But ultimately, I, I'm disappointed with this team. I, I don't know necessarily how to score it. It wouldn't be a high score. I'm not going to reward them for being second in the championship because Ferrari's non-existent and because there's so many middle-of-the-pack teams that are so close to them. And then again, the way they've managed Alex Albon this year, I don't think has been great. I don't think they're nurturing him. I don't think they're creating and cultivating a culture where he's... He's comfortable and he's comfortable making mistakes. And and I think it's just a tough spot for him to be in. Yeah, absolutely. The, you make a couple of good points there. Like Max, I think, is another one of these guys. Like you say, he's a next level talent. And I, I think very much like uh, Charles Leclerc, I think he's driving the the, the car beyond the, the, the capabilities. He, he's pushing the envelope to use a, a little bit of a Top Gun uh, metaphor there. But, uh, you know, it, it is interesting because when you look at the, uh, the the results that he's had with his teammates over the past uh, couple of years, be it Gasly or Albon, and you compare it to the couple of years he spent uh, together with Danny Ricardo, it was very much if one had a third, the other one had a fourth, you know, or a fifth and a sixth, or a second and a third. You know, it, it was they, they were very, very close. Exactly. And then they're sort of interspersed with a, with a couple of wins here and there each season for either driver and then I think that's kind of skewed uh, things unfairly towards guys like um, uh, or away from guys like Albon and and Gasly because you have to remember that by the time that you had that that pairing of Danny Ricciardo and Max Verstappen Max is one of these guys that's a, a bit of a an oddity in a good way that uh, he's almost what was like just such an, a phenomenal talent and so quick right from the beginning again very much like uh, Charles Leclerc but then you had Danny Ricardo who already of course uh, being a, a good talented solid capable formula 1 driver already had a number of years and seasons under his belt so he'd already you know established himself in formula 1 
And then you, you break up that dynamic and you're bringing in two guys that are still on the up. They're still in their early 20s. They, they're they their first time in a big team. And, you know, to expect similar things, the, I think it's a little bit uh, too much. I, I think that they you have to give these guys time to grow into a role where they, they can complement Max more and deliver those kind of uh, results uh, very much like they had with, with Danny Ricardo. Because it's interesting, you look at 2018, the last year that you had Ricardo and Max Verstappen, they were third in the championship, 419 points. Now you go and look at the 2019 World Championship, again, they finished third in the World Championship, 417 points uh, combined for Pierre Gasly and Alex Albon and Max uh, Verstappen. I mean, the, the, the big difference is there. Max got three wins last year, Austria, Germany, and Brazil. And then the year before you had uh, Max, he won in Austria and Mexico. And then you had uh, Danny Ricardo winning in China and in Canada. So, you know, I mean, th- those results were a lot closer, but it's kind of funny for all the negative stuff and all the sort of, uh, focus that like Albon and Gasly have had there that oh they're not quite living up to what uh, what the what Max and what uh, Ricardo were doing that combined actually they were only two points off what Max and Ricardo did in in 2018 but yeah I mean just to sort of follow up uh, your point and kind of maybe just uh, close off the this segment so that yeah they're a bit of a tough team to to, to score in terms that they're 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 basically in second in the constructors by default and they've done some things good some things not quite so good but it is kind of worrying to see where they've trended over the past uh, couple of races especially with Max because you know it it just doesn't look good and Max does get kind of frustrated and he doesn't uh, hold it in he, and I would hate to see that relationship with Honda and Re- Red Bull go sour because they're not committed in Formula One as far as I know beyond 2021 and then that's going to put Red Bull in an awfully difficult uh, position I mean uh, Abitabul was saying even as recently as a couple of weeks ago that that probably wouldn't be something that they want to go back and get involved with again because I mean if you go back even as far back as 2014 and 2015 I mean uh, Horner was even then complaining about the, you know, the the lack of power that the Renaults had compared to the Ferrari and the Mercedes power units. Although at that point it was wars. Yeah, they, we we just don't have as much power in our power unit as as uh, as our rivals do. And of course, that relationship uh, deteriorated uh, quite <laughs> quite a bit in the in the years thereafter. But yeah, I mean certainly they're okay. But I, I certainly expect a, a lot more of them or from them. I should say. While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. They operated a full-service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted. They tried all kinds of products, but they didn't work. Then they started experimenting with CBD. They loved the effects and regained control of their days and nights, but they wanted better CBD products. So what they did for themselves was specially formulate CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that were super consumable, easy to take on the go, and effective. Long story short, their specially formulated CBD products and vitamins helped relieve the overwhelming angst they felt on a daily basis. So in July 2017, they named the company Sunday Scaries and began sharing their products with friends and launched their online store at sundayscaries.com. 
With tens of thousands of customers, monthly subscribers, and a 100% money-back guarantee, Sunday Scaries has always been on a mission to transform a worrisome nation into a chill one. And right now, we have a bonus for you. Get 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Again, 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. All right. Well, we're kind of gone through everyone else and we've saw, we've left, I don't know, I guess the easiest one for last. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. And this is almost a, I don't want to say it's a, uh. it's a no brainer because uh, it, it really isn't. But uh, the, the last one on the list is uh, Mercedes uh, currently running away with uh, both the, uh, the, the drivers and constructors uh, championships. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it basically is what, uh, what, what we would expect uh, from, from Mercedes. I mean, uh, Lewis has just been absolutely dominant. I mean, he's 190 points in the the, the drivers' uh, championship right now. His teammate 135. I mean, he's he's been able to open that gap up on uh, Max Verstappen. Of course, Max not scoring points in the last two races, so that kind of that kind of uh, changes things uh, a little bit. But then again, in the constructors, I mean, they're just miles ahead. I mean, 325 points compared to 173 for Red Bull, and then uh, McLaren 100 106 six points uh you know the the thing is it is just uh, it's amazing what they're doing. I mean, um, <laughs> I mean, Lewis's uh, worst of results uh, so far was seventh in Italy, and we know how that all kind of worked out because of that uh, the ten second penalty he got for going into the pit lane when the pit lane was closed, and then uh, his teammates uh, only ended up with a fifth. But I mean, Lewis. I mean, he's been so dominant uh, all the other times. He should have won that second race in Silverstone. And I mean, if anybody can drive a, a car on three wheels and still finish on the podium, it would be <laughs> Lewis Hamilton. <laughs> but uh, to me, the thing that 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 fascinates me about uh, uh, Mercedes is just uh, all the talk about oh, this year that this uh, that this is going to be the championship that's going to go down between Lewis Hamilton and, and and Valtteri Bottas. And my my or at least that was some of the talk before the start of the season. My position on that is really was that ever really a serious thing? Because I mean, what we've seen with the uh, with the uh, Bottas and Hamilton over the past three seasons, I mean, combined, I mean, they've been they've been massive. I mean, they've they've completely run away with the uh, with the championship, winning uh, obviously five in a row now. I mean, last year they set an well, it wasn't the the, the most uh, points that they'd uh, gotten a season. That was seven hundred and sixty five points was the record they set back in twenty sixteen. Last year was a little bit shy of that mark. 739 points in the constructors. But the thing is, I I, I I keep saying that Bottas is the perfect guy to have there because he's quick. He's going to score a lot of points. He's going to win the occasional race, but he's not going to win as many races as a Rosberg. He's not as close to Lewis as Rosberg was. And maybe even more importantly, he's not going to get under Lewis's skin like Rosberg did, and and really, uh, I mean, it was such a really toxic, nasty uh, r- relationship that they had there. That that partnership, I mean, for 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 uh, for Mercedes, Bottas is the perfect uh, teammate, and for for Lewis, I I just I can't see a situation where Bottas is going to really challenge him. He's going to win a race here and there, like he did at the at the Austrian Grand Prix, but he did the same thing last year. He came out. 
and blew everyone's uh, socks off in, in Australia. And then pretty soon we settled back down into the, uh, the, the, the routine that we've seen where, you know, it's, it's usually Lewis uh, winning the races and then uh, Bottas winning a race here and there, although he's uh, still to win a race again this year. But, you know, unless something drastic happens, I just, I, I just can't see Bottas beating Lewis Hamilton consistently. I, I can't see anybody beating Lewis consistently, least of all, well, maybe not least of all. I just, I, I don't see it uh, happening from Valtteri at all. There is, you, you said it, there is no better pairing in Formula One for Lewis Hamilton than Valtteri Bottas. And I honestly believe that Twitter and Reddit and sports broadcasters and the talking heads, they're more concerned about Bottas's finishes weekend to weekend than Mercedes is. I think Mercedes is thrilled with how Bottas performs. I think they I I don't think they could be happier with this relationship. The two drivers are complimentary, they're respectful of each other, they get along. Hamilton knows without having to be told that he is the alpha driver, that he's the dominant driver. He's better He's better enough than Valtteri that team orders never have to come into play. And I, I, I think they would if they were close enough, but they don't need to. Um, I think Bottas's personality is such that he's never going to be outwardly feisty or anxious for race wins or to be upset that there's any degree of favoritism within their organization. And I think from a marketing side, there probably is, but I think that that team has enough resources and uh, capabilities that from a, a driver development perspective and developing those cars, it's probably pretty equal, but I think he is the perfect complement to Hamilton. Nico Rosberg was possibly the worst compliment to Hamilton for all the reasons that you and I will eventually speak to. Obviously, they both believe they were alpha drivers. There were some serious psychological warfare happening there, but none mm-hmm. of that happens with Bottas because I don't think he's capable of the mental psychological maneuvers that Nico delivered. And I don't think Nico wins that championship unless he gets into Hamilton's head. I don't think Bottas is capable of that. And I think as much as Bottas would love to be a world champion, I think he's also satisfied recognizing that I am driving the best car in the world for the best team in the world. I'm going to get that occasional race win. I am going to win a constructor's title. I am going to be lavished with rich contracts. I'm going to get all the exposure that comes with all of this. And I don't have any expectation or pressures to win a world title. I just have to be good enough to put some space between Hamilton and the rest of the field. And and I think he, he does that. And to your point, he's going to win the occasional race. He's going to be on pole occasionally. He's not... I don't think he's a world championship caliber driver. And to your earlier point as well, and I thought it was a good one, if Hamilton was to retire after the season, I don't believe it's a foregone conclusion that Bottas is going to take this car to a world driver's title. I think it would probably be close, but I think it would be a really close battle between him and Max. And I think that also helps to demonstrate that Lewis has the best car and nobody's debating that. He's had the best car since 2014. And obviously Mercedes has dominated the hybrid era. They've won all the driver's titles. They've won all the constructor's titles. They'll win both again this year. But I think Hamilton, and I think it's difficult to see simply because the car is so good, but I think he takes this car to another level in the same way that Max takes the Red Bull to another level. And if Lewis was in the Red Bull, I don't think he's winning a title. If he's in a Ferrari this year, I don't think he's winning a title. I think if he was a Ferrari in 2018, he probably would have won the title and maybe in 2017. But I think he takes the best 
racing car on the planet to an entirely different level. And I think if the team replaced him, I don't necessarily know that they're going to win a driver's title. They might, but they might not necessarily do so. I I think the future is still bright for this team. I, I think we're seeing more and more signs by the day that at least in its current structure, and maybe there's some outside investment and some more corporate partnerships, but that this team is probably going to be invested at least for the next Concord agreement. Hamilton's contract's up at the end of the year. I think it's a foregone conclusion that he does resign. He'd made some really, he'd made some really, really great comments earlier this year about the fact that, hey, right now with everything that's going on in the world, Right now, optically, it's just not the right time to go and sign a multi-million dollar contract with everything that's going on. We'll get the contract done. I'm not stressed. I'm not looking anywhere else. And I think he'll be back next year. And I think he would be foolish not to. And and it's also funny, right? Like if you flash back to the most recent offseason, the speculation about him shifting to Ferrari for 2021 was off the charts. That's completely (laughs) gone now. Completely gone now. But I think his relationship with the team is phenomenal. I think he comes out of this at the the other end uh, with seven, eight, nine world titles. Um, I think he's going to come out with an ownership stake in the team. Um, he's going to come out with a significant investment in Mercedes. And I think it will be a marriage made in heaven. And I think as long as he's racing for Mercedes, Bottas will be there. I think Bottas will be there as long as he continues to compete at this level and as long as he wants to be there. But yeah, I think it's the perfect marriage. And for me, Mercedes is an A. I think I I can't really fault anything that's happened this year. To your point, like Hamilton's worst performance was a seventh in the Italian Grand Prix. And obviously there are some mitigating factors around that. He finished fourth in Austria, but he'd made contact with Elbon because he went a little hot into that corner with a little too... uh, a little too little tread left on those tires. But for me, it's an A and and it's organizationally, they do everything you would expect them to do with the resources that they have. And they have all the resources in the world. So I, and I can't fault them for what they've been able to deliver. Well, that's that's the point that that I always make too. Is that uh, as easy it is to to, to get uh, get on them and hate them for being so good and ruining Formula One? I mean, they've done what they do and they've done it so well. And the thing is, nobody's been able to step up and do it. I I, I saw a very funny tweet a, a couple of weeks ago where somebody had uh, sent uh, had tweeted something that uh, oh uh, Mercedes is ruining formula 1 something to to, to that effect to where uh, somebody on the uh, the Mercedes uh, 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 social media team replied to uh, well well we're not uh, we're not ruining formula 1 because we're just doing what we're doing i said in fact uh, why don't you blame our competitors who in most cases have had the yes, full yes. or not greater resources than we have had and i thought that was so true and 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 of course i mean you Read between the lines there. You know exactly who they're referring to. And it is, I mean, the the thing is they do what they do. And of course they have a lot of resources. Mercedes is not there just to be in Formula One. They're there to compete. They're there to win. And they've done a fantastic job. And the the one point that I always like to drive home when when it comes to Mercedes is that whenever they hit some sort of a bad patch, whenever they have some real adversity, I mean, go back and look at Monaco a couple of years ago, or even look at some of the... uh, struggles they had with uh, with tires at Silverstone during the summer is they get the, they, they they have these challenges and they're able to go away from a race they're able oh, to focus and agree. then and then they come back completely and, agree yeah and it, it is amazing how they they always overcome these hurdles and then instead of being one of these long prolonged 
real dramatic circumstances, it just becomes like a little momentary blip. I mean, it's just it's something that maybe appears for a race or two. They're able to sort it out and move forward, and and I think that is the mark of a, of a true champion. And they've just been able to to demonstrate it for years. I mean, it's it's one thing to hate on them for for winning all the time and saying it's ruining Formula One, but. Okay, it's it's one thing to go and maybe have uh, you know catch a bit of lightning in a bottle, if you want to say, it, and and maybe win a, a championship out of the blue. But what they're able to do consistently, year in year out, regardless of the resources that they they have available to them, e- e- that notwithstanding, I still think it is remarkable that they're able to consistently achieve at this high level. And uh, they they really have become the the gold standard, even though they're the silver arrows <laughs> in, in Formula One. And it's uh, you know sometimes it does uh, it does wear on me a little bit. But when you you know when you look at the bigger picture, I mean, I I can't help but admire what they what they do. And the same thing with the with Lewis Hamilton, just the way that he is consistently able to to drive that car and to do what he needs to do. And it it really is the the, the perfect combination of Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton, and when they get together, wonderful things happen. And uh, very much like you say, as long as they keep uh, you know that that pairing together, that uh, it's going to continue to go. I mean, he I mean he's going to win the championship this year. It's a, it's it's a foregone conclusion. He's going to tie Schumacher on seven, and then the question is how many more does he get after that? And I think that uh, only new, Lewis knows that uh, you know. Uh, I, I mean how long he's going to race. I mean, I think he's going to say, I'd like to win the championship every year, but, and, and as I've said each and every year, when I do like the, the, the season preview that until proven otherwise, I'm not going to put my money on anyone else other than Lewis Hamilton Mercedes to win both championships. You, you simply can't fall. And and I see it on Twitter. I see it on Reddit. You, you see it from the casual fan. You just can't fault Mercedes for this dominance. The, the reality is we shifted into the current formula in 2014. The teams knew a year in advance what the engine formula was going to be. Seven years later, the rest of the field hasn't put together a package that can compete. They've had all the time in the world. Yeah. And ultimately, if they want to point to the current Concord agreement and say, well, look, you know what? It, it favors Ferrari and it favors the heritage teams and Mercedes gets a bigger slice of the check and we don't like the way that the championship money is distributed. Well, you also signed that Concord agreement. You you were part and partial to that agreement to begin with. So, you know, you can't fault Mercedes for the Concord agreement because you agreed to it and you can't fault Mercedes for functioning within the technical and sporting regulations and winning titles. And, and ultimately, I, I think... If there is a concern that Mercedes is deterring people from watching the sport, we get a bit of a reboot in 2022, right? The new mm-hmm. the the new Concord agreement will kick in. Well, it'll kick in next year, but the new regulations will kick in the following year and we'll have a more consolidated model with less specialized parts. And, and hopefully that will introduce a little bit more competitiveness. But I think what we've seen in the last seven years, that's not the fault of Mercedes. They've just capitalized on a great opportunity. The rest of the field haven't. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's anything else we can add to uh, to, to that. 
it, it is certainly, like I say, until proven otherwise, I'm not convinced anybody can uh, beat them in the, in the championship. I'd like to see it. I think it would shake things up. But it, we're going into a period of great unknown now. I mean, COVID has obviously changed a lot of things. But on the, the, the business side, I mean, the Concord Agreement was always going to come up. It was always going to have to be re- renegotiated. And that's why I find it so fascinating. And we're, we're just going to wrap this up now and just uh, talk now about Formula One and Liberty, the media themselves, the, the, the people that run the sport. I find it absolutely fascinating that this new deal got done, plus all these emergency cost-cutting measures and the way that they negotiated the cost cap for next year and the way that number kind of shifted down. Because, you know, I... I I guess I just got used to growing up with Formula One that every time that there was ever a debate that Ferrari's default uh, position was, we're leaving and we're taking our toys with us. There was always this big outrage. It seemed like somebody was, usually Ferrari was threatening to uh, set up a rival series somewhere. And it always seemed so uh, uncertain. But of course, in those days, you had uh, Bernie Ecclestone uh, running Formula One. I think he probably enjoyed that uh, that kind of conflict and all the uh, political side to it. And then, whereas you come you come into Formula One now in 2020, you've got uh, Liberty Media, who've been running the show for a couple of years now. They're obviously in it. We think for the long haul, they're 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 looking at it uh, and approaching it from a couple of different levels. Um, they're, they're trying to market the sport and grow the sport. So they they have you know they, they've got a completely different approach to what uh, Bernie Ecclestone did. I mean, Bernie is Bernie. I mean, he built Formula One into what it was. But I think that uh, you know w- with Liberty, it's more corporate. They're looking at it uh, in, a, in a completely different manner. But I am, I'm just absolutely astounded and and at a loss for words that all these things have happened despite COVID going on. And then, you know, when it looked at uh, at some point that maybe nothing was going to happen, we, we get a confirmation of first a very short and abbreviated calendar, then it gets added to. And then all of a sudden, you know, races that were canceled uh, or we thought they might be postponed and brought back at the end of the year. There was always a little bit of hope for that. And then some were scratched completely, but somewhere in between, we get a, a number of new races added to the added to the calendar and races uh, and tracks we haven't been to for a number of years. And lo and behold, we're, we're only going to finish the season a couple of weeks later than usual at the usual place at, uh, at Yas Marina at Abu Dhabi. And we're still going to get uh, 17 races. I know it wasn't the 22 we were all hoping for, but I mean, September 2020 is a lot different than February 2020 when the the world was a completely different place. And the fact that they've been able to put this together and the fact that uh, this way that they've set things up, obviously, other than the the Perez uh, situation, which we talked about, I mean, by and large, it's it's been working. And I'm very impressed with that. I never really thought that uh, it it would would have gone on off this way but it's it's been really refreshing to see but also the other thing that they've done that I think is really good is that they they've also been able to renego- or renegotiate some deals with, with existing tracks and then we've also seen some other new circuits that brought in very disappointing we didn't get to see uh, the Dutch Grand Prix go this year and also Vietnam but hopefully they're back on the circuit next year if things are a little bit more more normal. So I would say all in all, it's it's not perfect, but I think that they're they're going in the right direction. Maybe not as quickly as uh, we we might have expected. I'd say that uh, I think from my point of view, I give them a B plus considering the the way that they've navigated, especially through these tricky times. 
I, I would agree with a B plus, and, and I agree. Had you told me in April that we would have a 17 race calendar and we would go to Turkey and we would go to one of my favorite tracks in the world because I'm a MotoGP fan, that we would go to Mugello and that we would go to some of these remarkable places. I, I, would, I would, there's no way in the world I would have believed you. So the fact that from a logistical perspective that Liberty was able to go out and negotiate contracts with these tracks, that they were able to manage the logistics of getting all of the race personnel to them, that they were able to build bubbles around them, and that they were able to put on world-class events, attracts that have never hosted Formula One. My gosh, what an unbelievable achievement to Formula One, to Liberty, um, and to the FIA. It's been phenomenal. And I think, honestly, and I was thinking about this when I was running earlier, you know what, 5, 10, 15 years from now when things are a little bit normal and we're back to that 20 race calendar and the fans are back at the races, we'll reflect on this season and really realize what a remarkable season it was. And I don't think I don't think for a second that there will ever be an asterisk next to the driver that wins this title. If anything, there should be a glyph that gives them twice as many championship points because to win a championship in a pandemic in a compressed 17 week or 17 race calendar where you're seeing triple header after triple header and that the drivers are being expected to race at tracks that some of them have never physically seen before is is nothing short of remarkable and and I think as well Formula One's done some other really great things that have really begun to blossom and for those of you that have been around for a while, you've probably heard me rant about the fact that Bernie Eccleston, if if he was bad at anything, and he there was a lot of things that he was really <laughs> bad at, but he was really bad at social media. Not only did he not embrace it, but he was allergic to it. And I think a lot of fans will remember, you know what, Lewis, there was one race where he was doing an Instagram story or a Snapchat story or something like that from the garage. And Bernie came down from his ivory tower and he was furious. Like, how dare you give a customer unpaid access to yourself and to your garage? Like he was allergic to it where Liberty's embraced it. And I think what this ultimately resulted in is suddenly we've got this booming young fan base, this new demo that Formula One hasn't seen in generations because unfortunately under Bernie, especially with the sponsorship package that they built in the global alliance of kind of partners is they they were catering to that 40 50 60 year old white demographic in Mm -hmm. western europe they weren't embracing diversity they weren't embracing youth and formula one's done this phenomenal job and i really attribute a lot of that to formula one embracing social media but you also look at the current crop of drivers george russell at 22 and nicholas latifi and lando norris like these young drivers and charles leclerc they're they're not only charismatic but they're marketable they're engaging with the drivers on social media they're on twitch they're live streaming their virtual races like they are doing everything you could want them to do to attract a younger demo and if you look on reddit and if you look on twitch it's happening i i think from my perspective if there's a couple of things that are problematic from formula one um I think in a lot of developed countries that have a really strong Formula One fan base, the Formula One product's been put behind a paywall. So countries like the United Kingdom, where typically fans were used to watching on BBC and ITV, you've got to subscribe to Sky now to get those races. But I think at the same time, they've done a really good job of continuing to develop their F1 TV Pro app. And I was burned by it first race of the season when I wasn't able to watch the first half, which was incredibly frustrating, but it's not a bad product. And they're also recognizing that, hey, look, most 
most fans, especially young fans, they don't have a cable package and they don't have satellite TV. We need to give them a really convenient, cost-efficient way of watching the race. And that app's getting better by the week, to be totally honest. For me, I, I think if there's a frustration, it's really... They came into the season and from a a social awareness perspective, they were bang on with the We Race as One strategy. I I loved it. And it it was a little choppy to begin with. You know, the first couple of races, do the drivers take a knee? Do they not take a knee? It wasn't particularly organized well. They didn't have the cameras in position. It it wasn't perfect. It was a little bit choppy. Um, I think we also saw that some drivers definitely embraced the no racism cause more than others. And we can talk another podcast about Max and, and Charles and some of the comments that they made. But ultimately, I think the sport did the right thing. I think the one thing that worries me is Under Bernie, the sport was very quick to sign race contracts with developing country dictatorships and totalitarian Mm. governments and authoritarian regime. He was very quick to give a race to a country that was willing to cut a 20 or 40 or million or 60 million dollar hosting fee. And he would often do that at the expense of these European countries or these more industrialized countries that had a history and a legacy with the sport. And, and I think under Bernie, he began to alienate a lot of those fans because you know what? You may not get $60 million out of Silverstone to host that race, but if you're not at Silverstone, what that does to your TV watching viewing base is, is incredibly problematic. And I think one of the things that's kind of bugged me about Liberty is they've kind of continued that Bernie trend. And I think one of the things that we've seen this year is one of their new global partners is Aramco, which is the state-owned oil company in Saudi Arabia. And it's one thing for you to go out there and promote We Races One, an anti-racism message, um, a socially con- cohesive message, a message that drives diversity and promotes diversity. And it's another to partner with a state-owned oil company of one of the worst human rights offenders on the planet. So that that kind of bugs me a little bit, especially as under Liberty, they're still pursuing a race in that country. So I think logistically what they've done this season, world-class, fantastic, continue to cultivate your young fans, continue to embrace social media continuing to embrace these relationships with these more problematic totalitarian countries that don't necessarily embrace the same human rights message that you're driving through your re races one message that's a little problematic for me yeah it's a bit cloudy and a bit a bit a bit of a mixed messaging that uh, it doesn't really send you know the, the right uh, image out there and it, it really is like you say it's it's problematic but in general, they, they have been doing a good job, I think. And like you say, uh, to get a season off uh, in the, the, the situation we find ourselves. And it's uh, it's been entertaining at times. I think it's been, uh, been wonderful. But here we go. Almost uh, two hours later, we, we, <laughs> we've managed to get through this whole thing. We're out of red ink and the pens here. So it's pretty much the place where, where we wanted to be. So it's it's been a lot of fun uh, to, to get it done and sit down and do this thing tonight. And uh, well, I, I'm looking forward to the next uh, bunch of races coming up. And it, it, it's interesting now, too, too, that after having all these triple header weekends, we're kind of getting back to a normal rhythm, you know, where we have a week in between races or maybe we have a back-to-back uh, season because I know from a purely sh- a selfish point of view I like the triple headers but I know that Me for too. the teams and for the drivers it's it, it's a lot of work and it, it from that point of view it's it's going to lose a little bit of momentum I think from a viewing point of view I just hope that uh, what what we see on the track in the second half of the year is, is uh, just as good as what we've seen at times so far 
Before we sign off, one quick question for you. Of the remaining races, which one are you most excited for? Oh, Nürburgring. And that, that's, Nürburgring? Yeah, that's that's purely from a sentimental point of view, because that is the very first uh, race that I went to way back in 2001 for the European Grand Prix. And that was right in the middle of summer. It was hot. It was sunny. It was... You know, 100,000 people packed in the stands, all wearing uh, red, uh, right at the height of Schumacher mania. And it, it was wonderful. So, I, and as well, I also like the track, uh, especially where we were sitting at uh, was the, the, the hairpin, the Dunlop uh, corner right at the bottom of the track. And it was awesome to watch the cars come down the hill through those uh, series of sweeping corners, slow down, go into the, the hairpin, and awesome. then fly up the, the hill before they went into a, another left-hander. You saw a really, really good... Um, well, you, you, you got a nice view because you had the terrain there, but also it was a good way to see the cars and how they perform and the different extremes of acceleration and braking and uh, just the, the, the way that the cars could throw themselves through the corners. And that's a, you know, that's a generation of cars 20 years old. I couldn't can't wait to see these new cars on the Nürburgring. I oh, think it's going to be awesome. Point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What about yourself? Point. Which track are you Turkey. looking forward to? Turkey, yes. Yeah. I, I, I'm ecstatic for Turkey. And I think one of the things that's going to be most crazy about that is the race organizers are bringing in 100,000 fans. They, they've sold 40,000 tickets. Uh, they're expecting 100,000 out the, the track seat. So they say it's socially distance friendly because the track sits 220,000 fans, but yep. they're going to have 100,000 fans there. And I think that's the other great thing about the back half of the season is slowly we're going to see fans back in these tracks. And I think that that improves the the pre, the the atmosphere and all of these kind of pieces. So hopefully, when Absolutely. Lewis wins his driver's title, he's going to be able to do it in front of some fans. But I am ecstatic to see Turkey. Absolutely, I'm looking forward to all of them. Can't wait to get back to racing in Russia in a couple of weeks. Cool. And that's it. I think uh, I think I've run out of breath uh, for this one. Me too. <laughs> Me too. Can't wait to get this one out. So why don't you just uh, remind everyone where they can find you online and on social media? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, like uh, we said off the top, my name is Mark Hamilton. I am the co-host of the Flash F1 podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. And of course, you can subscribe to the podcast on any of the popular podcast platforms, Apple Music, Spotify, and all the others. And we would love if you could uh, subscribe and drop a comment for us. And I am Mark Daly. I'm the host of Scuderia F1. And just like Mark, you can find us on uh, Apple uh, Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else. And we're on Twitter, Facebook, all those good places. So hit us up with a follow or a like, and uh, it would be great. Appreciate it. And that's it. That's a wrap from Mark and Mark. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll talk to you guys again very, very soon. Bye for now. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Scuderia F1 podcast. If you want to get the show notes for this episode, then head over to ScuderiaF1Pod.com. Want to get in touch with us? Then email us at ScuderiaF1Pod at gmail.com.